0: Anyway, after I came back, I asked myself, why was I, the Chief of Special ops, selected to travel to the South Pole at that time to do a job that any number of others could have done? And I wondered if it could have been because one of my routine duties, if I had been in Washington, would have been to arrange for additional security in Texas, so I decided to check it out. And sure enough, I found out that someone had told the 112th Military Intelligence Group at 4th Army Headquarters at Fort Sam Houston to stand down that day over the protests of the unit commander, Colonel Wright, I believe it's a mistake. This is significant because it is standard operating procedure, especially in a known hostile city like Dallas, to supplement the secret service. I mean, even if we had not allowed the bubble top to be removed from the limousine, we would have placed at least 100 to 200 agents on the sidewalk without question. I mean, only a month in Dallas. UN Ambassador Adlai Stevenson was spit on and hit. There had already been several attempts on De Gaulle's life in France. We would have arrived days ahead of time, studied the route, checked all the buildings, never would have allowed all those wide open empty windows overlooking Dealey, never. We'd have had our own snipers covering the area. The minute a window went up, they'd have been on the radio. We'd have been watching the crowd, packages rolled up, newspapers, code over an up. Never would have let a man open an umbrella along the way. Never would have allowed that limousine to slow down to 10 miles an hour, much less take that unusual curve at Houston and Elm. You would have felt an army presence in the streets that day. None of this happened. It was a violation of the most basic protection codes we have, and it is the best indication of a massive plot in Dallas. Now, who could have best done this? Black ops, Mr. Garrison, people in my business, people like my superior officer could have called Colonel Reich and said, look, we have another unit coming from so-and-so, providing security. You'll stand down. I mean, that day, in fact, there were some individual Army intelligence people in Dallas. I'm still trying to figure out who and why, but they weren't protecting Client and, of course, Oswald. Army intel had a Harvey Lee Oswald on file. All those files have been destroyed. Many strange things were happening, and your Lee Harvey Oswald had nothing to do with them. We had the entire cabinet on a trip to the Far East. We had one third of a combat division returning from Germany in the air above the United States at the time of the shooting. At 12.34 PM, the entire telephone system went on in Washington for a solid hour. And on the plane back to Washington, word was radioed from the White House situations room to Lyndon Johnson that one individual performed the assassination. Does that sound like a bunch of coincidences to you, Mr. Garrison? No. Not for one moment. The cabinet was out of the country to get their perceptions out of the way. Troops were in the air for possible riot control. The telephones didn't work to get the wrong stories from spreading if anything went wrong with the plan. Nothing was left to chance. He could not be allowed to escape alive. Well, I never thought things were the same after that. Vietnam started for real. There was an air of, I don't know, make-believe in the Pentagon and CIA. Those of us who'd been in secret ops since the beginning knew the Warren Commission was fiction. But there was something, something deeper, uglier. I knew Alan Dulles very well. I'd briefed him many a time in his house. But for the life of me, I still can't figure out why he was appointed to investigate Kennedy's death, the man who had fired him. Dallas, by the way, was General Wyatt's benefactor. I got out in 64, resigned my commission.
1: I never realized Kennedy was so dangerous to the
0: establishment. Is that why? Well, it's a real question, isn't it? Why? The how and the who is just scenery for the public. Oswald, Ruby, Cuba, the Mafia keeps him guessing like some kind of parlor game prevents him from asking the most important question why? Why was Kennedy killed? Who benefited? Who has the power to cover it up?
2: Scott, if your life had a face, I would
3: punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you
2: something. Why would you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? Do you think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood.
4: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of The Greatest Moments in the History of Forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 270, JFK, and this is listener request number 26, courtesy of Jade.
5: Thank you, Jade. Thanks to you, I was finally able to find out what happened to JFK (laughs) with this 100% factual account of a historical event
4: yes much like titanic you didn't know anything about jfk (laughs) you didn't even know who he was until this movie
5: i was like oh who's this nice guy riding around in this car with oh (laughs) shit
4: (laughs) yeah we just got done talking about this movie pretty much for an hour before we even started recording and i haven't even
5: scratched the surface
4: one of the things i was saying was i love this movie i get sucked into it so hardcore but there's a zero percent chance I would have ever thought this was a good idea to do on the podcast. <laughs> Just impossible to cover this movie. We'll
5: give it a go, though. No, I'm super happy to have watched it, though. I, I I loved the movie.
4: Yeah, it's awesome. So before we jump into that and everything that comes with JFK, let's remind our listeners to follow the show on Twitter, at GreatestPod. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, etc. Please give us a rating and review. If you get the chance on Apple Podcasts, if you'd like a sticker, let us know on Twitter. We'll send one to you for free, and you can find us on Letterboxd. Zach, 1983, Matt Crosby. And this officially kicks off Listener Request Summer, so for the rest of June, or at least the next four episodes, we're doing Listener Requests that have come in for this year. If you haven't been paying attention, this has replaced One Trashy Summer this year. Right. One Trashy Summer potentially will make its sleazy return next year <laughs> hopefully can't wait we're doing Jade's request this week next week Christy then Brian then Theodore and then there's a few other people for the rest of the year we'll maybe talk about that later but that's who you can expect for June so let's get into it there's so much to cover this movie even the theatrical cut is 3 hours and 9 minutes the director's cut, which is the version I used because that's the version I own on Vudu, the digital version. yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I had to rent it. That's three hours and 25 minutes. So it almost feels impossible to completely encompass everything about this film from the factual accuracies and inaccuracies to the reception to the film that started even before it was finished. The reaction to it, the dialogue it caused in America, even amongst people's own families at get-togethers and gatherings, it was such a a lightning rod, a a conversation starter. It was at the center of the culture. Everyone had an opinion on it. and For a movie that's three hours plus, it captured the public's imagination, and it it just really speaks to a a time when movies were much more important to people, I think. Uh
5: Uh-huh. It's funny watching it from the perspective of someone who is only like loosely familiar with the whole conspiracy the Zebruder film and the grassy knoll and the magic bullet but without ever like going in depth as to what all of the full spectrum of conspiracy theories that are out there for it if you watch this movie just with the some details that you have you're like holy shit how did all this happen like not you know before you're aware of this whole counter myth, Perspective that
4: Stone was using, like if you just
5: think that this is an account of what happened, you're like, what the fuck?
4: Yeah, and I'm sure that some people do feel that way, and I think it did have a big influence on how people think about the JFK assassination. JFK conspiracy theories obviously were not new. Right by 1991, they had existed for a long time, starting in the 60s. But they really, I think, started. Gaining more traction in the '80s, yeah, it's definitely and,
5: something that I feel like I grew up with. It just getting like referenced in in movies, or maybe even like TV shows too. It just seemed like it was woven in, like stupid shit, like something completely unrelated. But there will just be like a little side part of the movie where they're like, "Oh yeah," and well, you'll find out what happened with JFK or something.
4: Right? Yeah, and I think this popularized a lot of the more underground theories, and it really brought to light a lot of things that. A good percentage of the country didn't really know or or didn't really think about. And that's one of the themes that I think we'll touch on as we go through this movie is that despite the fact that there is a lot of stuff in this film that is more than likely not true and invented for the purposes of the film, that it still served its purpose, which was to get people to question what we were being told and to... Shine a light on the problems with the accepted version of events, and and the Warren report, and everything that would potentially be wrong with that. And I think that it's pretty safe to say that Stone knew all along that he wasn't really giving us all of the answers, and that everything he was saying wasn't exactly provable. But you have to believe that
5: it's effective in what he set out to do, which is cast some doubt to most people, at least. Put people in a position where they're asking the questions, like, how, how can this be?
4: JFK was released in 1991. It was directed by Oliver Stone, screenplay by Stone and Zachary Sklar, based on two books, On the Trail of the Assassins by Jim Garrison and Crossfire, the Plot that Killed Kennedy by Jim Mars. It boasts an unbelievable cast filled with a lot of big names and recognizable faces, especially for 1991. Kevin Costner, Gary Oldman, Jack Lemmon, Walter Matthau, J.O. Sanders, Ed Asner, Vincent D'Onofrio, Sissy Spacek in a thankless role. Yeah,
5: really. Brian Doyle-Murray.
4: Yes. Wayne Knight, Michael Rooker, Laurie Metcalf, Joe Pesci, Tommy Lee Jones, John Candy, Kevin Bacon, even people like Edwin Neal, the hitchhiker from Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh. Jim Garrison himself appearing as Earl Warren. Okay. Okay. And Donald Sutherland as X. Yes. I'm pretty sure out of the people that I just listed, we will get a chance to spotlight most of them, except for maybe Sissy Spacek. We're going to kind of gloss over the family drama. She doesn't have a lot stuff. of big moments. Yeah, it's a nothing part that really doesn't factor in much other than to show you the cost of what Garrison is undertaking. And, and to also illustrate his point about... yeah. He's the father that is not fulfilling his promise to his own son, and that's sort of what Stone and Garrison are saying or seeing in the story of JFK's assassination. The country is the father not fulfilling the promise to the son, which is us. Right. We've been betrayed. But other than that, the family dynamic doesn't really matter that much. So how do we take this film? How do we analyze it? Is it fact? Is it fiction or both? what ultimately is accomplished by it. Obviously, in the 30-plus years since it was released, we know now that Stone took a certain creative license with a lot of the details, and there are characters that appear in this film that are not based on reality. There's invented conversations, invented moments. People are amalgams rather than based on one solid character. Plays pretty fast and loose with things. But as I said, and as you alluded to as well, I think that the larger idea of the film goes beyond nailing one specific idea down and being like, this is the truth. This is actually what happened. It's more, here's what they've told you happened and here's a bunch of shit that we're going to throw at the wall and most of it might stick of why this didn't happen. Now... We're also going to throw in a lot of wild theories and crazy shit in here yes. too, but that will serve as a counter myth because if they can lie to us and tell us this myth, we're going to counter it with something else to get you thinking.
5: I have to say if those Clay Shaw parties are made up, that's too bad because they seem like a good time.
4: <laughs> JFK had a $40 million budget and it went on to gross $205.4 million at the box office. And so in the end... The gamble that Warner Brothers and Oliver Stone and and everyone was taking paid off, but the reactions to it were immediate and visceral, and yeah. the discourse was very electrically charged. You hit on that. That is sort of a shock that
5: a studio stuck with this
4: all the way to release. You know, especially considering it's over three hours.
5: Yeah, I know. <laughs> it seems wild. Like it, by the time of the '90s, that they would have done this, but
4: Stone was such a big deal that it's hard to even really. Yeah, think of him as the same guy because his career very much calmed down in the 90s to where he became more of an afterthought i do think that this movie actually had a particular impact on how people perceived him going forward but he was coming off an unbelievable run to close out the 80s oh yeah with platoon right which won best picture wall street which won best actor He got Cruise nominated for Born on the 4th of July. Uh All of the major actors wanted to work with him. His movies were successful. They were talking points. They were a big deal. He goes in there to pitch a Howard Hughes story, which they ended up not being able to do because Warren Beatty owned the rights. And then he's like, hey, how about this? Right. (laughs) And then it turns into JFK. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The next thing you know. Which is wild because he was also working on The Doors, and both films came out the same year which is crazy. I know, that is insane. The controversy was immeasurable. Stone was attacked. The movie was attacked. Like I said, even before it was released. And then once it was released, it it only amplified it. And it ultimately, of course, had the opposite effect than what these critics probably would have wanted, which made more people want to see the film for themselves. (laughs) Stone himself described this account in the film as a counter-myth to the Warren Commission's fictional myth, as he described it. (laughs) taking a shot. But it wasn't just a success in terms of box office. It also received eight Academy Award nominations, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Supporting Actor for Tommy Lee Jones, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Original Score, Best Sound, and it won two for Best Cinematography and Best Film Editing. And I think now, all these years later, it probably doesn't seem as revolutionary, but the way that this film was edited and constructed it was so unlike anything people had seen.
5: Yeah, it definitely has an artistic feel to it that was actually kind of unexpected for me.
4: The use of different aspect ratios, the black and white, the flashbacks, the flashbacks within flashbacks, yeah. and yet somehow it all feels coherent Uh huh. and you never lose the thread and every choice they seem to make sucks you into the story more like you're riding along you're jumping around with oswald in russia and then you're in the Ugh, jungles in it, cuba it's and almost overwhelming new orleans and then texas and then <laughs> yeah vietnam and you're all of a sudden in the oval office and then you're in the limo then you're in Dealey oh, plaza and you're, you you get it though. interviewing you, you, you people in
5: restaurants it. constantly over top of other scenes where they're like figuring things out putting things together there's times in this movie where three minutes pass and so much dialogue is packed into (laughs) those few minutes and you're like holy shit how many details are in this movie
4: I guess that would probably be its own strategy is to overload you with information to try to build a case so big that you can't really see the whole thing all at once yeah because it's just so enormous by the way the year that this came out was the year that the silence of the lambs won everything oh wow Right. Some of the major films that year which were nominated for Best Picture would include This and Silence of the Lambs, Beauty and the Beast, Bugsy, and The Prince of Tides. But also hmm. released that year was Thelma and Louise, Terminator 2, and Boys in the Hood. So a lot wow. of uh, things we've touched on Yeah, on really. Show. Big year. As I mentioned, The Doors was also released in 91. I don't actually think Kilmer was nominated for playing Jim Morrison, which I think is insane. Oh, I know. But I'm not 100% sure. The idea for the film started gestating in the late 80s, sometime between Born on the Fourth of July and The Doors. Stone hired a researcher named Jane Rusconi who ended up reading between 100 and 200 books on the subject of JFK's assassination. So right there, that sentence alone tells you <laughs> yeah. there was a market for this. For Pe- sure. It was a little bit underground still. The internet didn't exist, obviously. But it wasn't as if the Warren report came out and every single person was like, yep, this is good. Yeah. And then it wasn't until this movie where everyone was like, what the fuck? No, I mean, people <laughs> I, right. thought about this yeah, yeah. a lot.
5: It seems like people started to question it pretty quickly. Because something felt off about the whole thing. Even when you watch any revisit of history, the whole Jack Ruby thing just seems off. Like him killing Oswald. You're just jumping into
4: it, yeah. No, I, well, okay. Well, I mean, Not to
5: spoil it for people who don't no, I know mean, what happened to.
4: <laughs> but you could say that about anything no i know there's but that, so many different yeah. parts
5: where you're like this feels off no i know but that was on national tv so like a lot of people are reacting to that yeah i, I think there's a lot of casual people out there that weren't thinking about the exit wounds of the bullets but people saw jack ruby shoot this dude on tv and you're like why, why is this guy doing this what is
4: happening yeah how did this was well, more like how right how could well, this true, happen yeah supposedly why and a, how? a parking garage filled with all these cops This guy walks in with a gun just out of nowhere. Yeah. We'll get there, though. The subject was personal for Oliver Stone, and I think... I think most of his movies are, it seems We'll get there more as we go, but at the center of a lot of Stone's work, and his definitely his best work, is Vietnam hanging over everything, and this movie, make no mistake about it, is a Vietnam movie in its own way. And it's sort of difficult, I think, for a lot of people to comprehend. But in Jim Garrison, Stone seemed to identify a kindred spirit. And Garrison, as a man and as a prosecutor, had his own flaws. But he shared this same passion with Stone. And I think when Stone found this book and then met with Garrison, they connected over something. This feeling that something went wrong. In the country, in the story of America, there was this moment where everything went wrong. And they're not the only ones, and there's other examples even in pop culture of it with different books and things of that nature where this is the defining moment in American history. But I guess because of Stone's success in film, it just happened to be the right moment where he was able to put something like this on this scale together oh, yeah, and actually make it happen. Because it's such a huge undertaking, and I don't even know how you would have enough time <laughs> to I like know. work on the doors and then also come up with this movie.
5: Especially with something that has, like I said, so much detail in it and still kind of put out this long yet coherent, relatively coherent final product.
4: They shot the film in just 72 days somehow, which seems almost impossible, and they also used the real locations of Dealey Plaza in Dallas, which they spent $4 million on to recreate what it looked like in 1963. They actually jumped through a lot of hoops to be able to film inside the Texas Book Depository. They filmed in the actual parking garage where Ruby killed Oswald. They filmed in the actual movie theater where they found and arrested Oswald. And I think that that actually lends itself to this strange, surreal quality because you have Oldman looking a lot like Oswald and he's doing his method acting where he's basically becoming Oswald. Right. There's a familiarity in not just him, but in the locations. And so it almost feels like you're watching real footage a lot of the time.
5: Yeah, there's like almost a documentary feel
4: at parts of it. Yeah. A lot of times people say that longtime stone enemy tarantino works in like a pastiche style i would say stone works in almost like a collage style sometimes yeah especially with this movie he's combining all of these different elements together gluing them on top of each other to come up with this unique look and style kennedy's assassination had always had a profound effect on stone the kennedy murder was one of the signal events of the post-war generation my generation Stone met Garrison and grilled him with a variety of questions for three hours. Garrison stood up to Stone's questioning and then got up and left. His pride and dignity impressed the director. Stone's impressions from their meeting were that Garrison made many mistakes, he trusted a lot of weirdos and followed a lot of fake leads, but yeah. he went out on a limb, way out, and he kept going even when he knew he was facing long odds. You do appreciate the obsession and like the dedication to it. Stone was not interested in making a film about Garrison's life, but rather the story behind the conspiracy to kill Kennedy.
5: Garrison is definitely feels like he's portrayed as heroic in the movie, don't you feel? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah,
4: Yeah, he specifically wanted to cast Costner in the end because of Costner's role in The Untouchables, and he thought that he would be this noble, wholesome guy, justice-chasing guy. Although he did offer it to some other people, too. We'll get to that in a minute. It's a lot to ask of your audience because you're calling the film JFK. JFK himself is not really a character in the film. It's not about JFK's life. It's not a biopic. It ends up being about his assassination, but not in real time. It's all pretty much after the fact and trying to piece it together. The story essentially turns into the case that Garrison was trying to build, which ultimately was wildly unsuccessful in real life. And so I think that in that sense, Stone was seeing that as the opportunity to take poetic license a little bit because he was trying to tell the story of Jim Garrison's case rather than what actually happened Uh in November 1963. So, you know, it's sort of a technicality, but that ends up being what it's about. But I think it's a pretty cool idea to just call it JFK because it just is going to suck you into it. Oh, totally. Totally. Stone broke the film's structure down into four stories, Garrison investigating the New Orleans connection to the assassination, the research that revealed what Stone calls Oswald legend, who he was, and how to try to inculcate that, the recreation of the assassination at Dealey Plaza, and the information that the character of X imparts on Garrison, which Stone saw as the, quote, means by which we were able to move between New Orleans local, into the wider story of Dealey Plaza. Sklar worked on the garrison side of the story while Stone added the Oswald story, the events at Dealey Plaza, and the Mr. X character. Oh, yeah. Sklar spent a year researching and writing a 550-page triple-spaced screenplay, (laughs) and then Stone rewrote it and condensed it closer to normal screenplay length. Stone and Sklar used composite characters, most notably the Mr. X character played by Donald Sutherland, this was a technique that would be criticized in the press. He actually was a mix of Richard K. Nagel and retired Air Force Colonel Fletcher Prouty, another advisor for the film, and who was a military liaison between the CIA and the Pentagon.
5: Yeah, so that guy was consultant for the
4: film? One of the guys that they based X on, yeah. Yeah. Uh,
5: yeah. Okay. It does seem like it's weird if you have an opportunity to use a real guy that you use a made-up guy.
4: Although, well, they were taking a lot of liberties yeah. with that. And one of those guys, I think, has been widely discredited okay. over the years.
5: Although I love the Mr. X scene in the movie. It's so cool.
4: Yeah. it's
5: And it's definitely something that's gone on to be referenced, parodied in things. You just see that type of thing pop up. The meeting on the park bench in D.C. It felt like JFK in general had to have been an influence on the X-Files. There's a character that's like X that's giving Mulder information all the time, the whole idea of the syndicate. Sure, yeah. It seemed very similar to this.
4: It's pretty much the stereotypical scene now where a character sort of functions as that explanation for everything and is able to quickly and succinctly explain something in a way that lays it all out for the viewer in a simple way to understand, while at the same time, encompassing something so huge. And it really did open up the film in stone for criticism because you're just having Garrison go to Washington, D.C. in the middle of this investigation, and then some guy meets with him and starts talking and explains everything. Yeah, but I don't care. It's a powerful scene. No, yeah. super cool. Whenever I tell people about the film who haven't seen it, I'm like, well, the best scene in the movie is 16 minutes of donald sutherland talking to kevin costa (laughs) on a bench yeah it's kind of hard to explain true so let's jump into the film itself there's going to be more at the end in general beyond the plot we'll circle back to some of the reactions and give our thoughts on the assassination maybe we'll solve it while we're (laughs) at it
5: (laughs) yeah it's funny i feel like i started in a place of Thinking to myself, do I actually believe in any of the conspiracies, like the famous conspiracies? Because it's kind of like ghosts where I'm like, I don't think I really believe in ghosts, but sometimes I think it's fun to. <laughs> Same thing for conspiracies. I don't know that I actually believe in any of this stuff. Although as I continue to go down the path, you're just like, well, something's up here, though. The Warren report, it's hard to take that at its at face value. But let's get into it.
4: To sin by silence when we should protest makes cowards out of men. Ella Wheeler Wilcox. That's the quote that begins the film, which is interesting because she was a writer who died when JFK was maybe one or two years old. So it's sort of hard to really see how that quote. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. I get what he means, but it's just weird when you take (laughs) a quote from a different time. During his farewell address in 1961, outgoing president Dwight D. Eisenhower warns about the buildup of the military-industrial complex. He is succeeded by John F. Kennedy as president, whose abbreviated time in office is marked by the Bay of Pigs invasion and the Cuban Missile Crisis before his assassination in Dealey Plaza in Dallas, Texas, on November 22nd, 1963.
5: By the way, all this stuff in the beginning, very helpful for me. I actually thought the opening part was pretty cool like using all those real clips like smashed together like pretty quickly to like just sort of explain the events leading up to
4: Yeah, it all sets the stage and it also lays out pretty early on as the credits are going and and as the the movie begins a motive. And the motive really and this is essentially the idea that's repeated and reiterated by X and others throughout the film is who is in control? Kennedy At least the version of John F. Kennedy that's portrayed by Oliver Stone, both in this film and the follow-up documentary, which we'll talk more about as we go, which came out last year, is portrayed as a huge threat to the establishment, and the establishment that is not even something that the American public is super familiar with. High-up people in the CIA, in the FBI, the military-industrial complex the people who profit from war, the people who profit from controlling the world, essentially. Uh And Kennedy was at odds with these people, most notably Alan Dulles, who is mentioned a lot in this film. Definitely. But I don't think the finger is pointed enough at his direction, and I think that if Stone remade this movie right now, that... Dulles would be more of the focal point, because that seems to be more of the direction he's leaning in the documentary. He's definitely set up in this film as a potential conspirator and For part sure. of it, but he's never singled out as like, this is definitely the guy. Right. And I think that's more how Stone feels now. Alan Dulles is- Well, there's definitely- Former CIA guy who Kennedy fired.
5: Yeah, which does- I mean, I don't know that being fired automatically leads to a motive for an assassination, but when you consider everything that's potentially riding in the CIA, it's probably pretty high stakes.
4: The name of the documentary is JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass. It was created as a response to the records that have been released in the aftermath of this film.
5: So you're telling me those records didn't change Stone's mind?
4: No, there's still stuff that hasn't been released. and There's still a lot of redacted information. But if anything, it seems like a lot of the stuff released lends more fuel to the fire. We
5: need the uh, final dossier.
4: We meet Jim Garrison, District Attorney of New Orleans, played by Kevin Costner. Mel Gibson and Harrison Ford were also considered for this. I think both potentially turned it down. Costner originally turned it down as well, but his agent talked him into it. Coming off of His huge Oscar performance the year before, it greatly enthused the studio to have him on board already and going with this movie with Dances of Wolves being so successful the prior year.
5: That does help. Helps keep the studio at bay.
4: One of the opening sequences is a scene with Jack Lemmon and Ed Asner playing Jack Martin and Guy Bannister, respectively. And it's so disorienting and confusing because... totally. It's like these two old guys bumming around New Orleans in the aftermath of the assassination.
5: I was like at first, because one of these guys, Jack Ruby, trying to piece together how these guys fit into the puzzle. And obviously, you quickly figure out that neither one is. But I don't know who these dudes are. But then Jack Lemon just starts getting bashed over the head.
4: (laughs) I think the only way you would even begin to know who they are is if you had probably read Garrison's book or, or something. Because essentially, Guy Bannister will just serve as a way to connect the events in Dallas to New Orleans, which is where Garrison's from. And I guess theoretically the point is that Garrison's interest in the case in the first place stems from it potentially being hatched in his own backyard. Right. The New Orleans connection is what draws him in in the first place. Sends him down the rabbit hole. Kennedy's suspected assassin Lee Harvey Oswald, played in the film by Gary Oldman is arrested for the murder of police officer J.D. Tippett, but is killed by Jack Ruby before ever standing trial for anything. And as you said, he's killed on television. Before he's killed, Oswald refers to himself as a patsy, which is something that at this point in the film is not super crucial to anything. Although everything Oldman says as Oswald is pretty much verbatim. As to what Oswald said in real life, but that's something that will come up later with how Stone chooses to portray Oswald by the end of the film and almost seemingly seems to seek to vindicate Oswald in a way. And yet he's using words like Patsy, which would make you think that, well, at the very least, he knows something's going on.
5: I would say at a minimum, he didn't really seem like a guy we'd want to hang out with.
4: Pretty early on, Garrison does find a connection between Oswald and New Orleans. I think that's just sort of out there in the public domain, and it definitely sparks his interest, and he, he starts going down the rabbit hole a little bit. He meets with people that he has found to have associated with Oswald, such as David Ferry, played by Joe Pesci.
5: Yeah, that first David Ferry, I guess, interview...
4: Where he's changing the story <laughs> about the geese and all that stuff. Yeah. Just terrible liar. Stone offered the part of David Ferry to James Woods, who wanted to play Garrison. It was also offered to Willem Dafoe and John Malkovich, both of which I could definitely see in this part. Oh, Pesci man. is I just think a wild choice. He is, but he's bringing it <laughs> with that yeah, hair. I would say that his performance is probably one of the more controversial items in the film beyond the subject matter at least right and yeah i i like it as well i like everybody in the movie i think stone has this way of casting people that it just somehow all works and makes sense and he gets all these great people to come in and do these parts some of which are only in one or two scenes
5: even tommy lee jones seems sort of out of place for him it works in the movie but when he first comes up as this character you're like Huh? That hair?
4: Everybody's going out on a limb.
5: (laughs) I guess, like you could say, huh? That hair about like a lot of characters in this movie.
4: Yeah, the wigs aren't great. Yeah. (laughs) Although I do think that with David Ferry, that's part of the point, right? That it seems that way. Just this comical, cartoony guy. Garrison's team includes Numa, played by Wayne Knight; Bill, played by Michael Rooker; Susie, played by Laurie Metcalf; Al, played by Gary Grubbs. And Lou, played by J.O. Sanders, that's his team.
5: Uh-huh. I did find myself wondering, like, how these people get some of these jobs. Like, I don't think they're all lawyers, right?
4: A couple of them are investigators, and a couple of them are, like, assistant DAs yeah, stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, it's a little simplified. Stone talked about this in his commentary over some of the deleted scenes, I think, and... It just made it simpler for a movie to have a set group of people rather than people coming in and out and somebody would work there for a year and then be gone and at some point their team would be much bigger and other teams would be smaller.
5: You know, right, right. A rotating cast of people. Yeah, just
4: have it be simple and easy yeah. for the film.
5: He didn't have to deal with the Great Resignation, but there was still a lot of moving parts in the office.
4: Garrison and his team investigate potential New Orleans links to the JFK assassination, including private pilot David Ferry. Who denies knowing Oswald at all, but their investigation is publicly rebuked by the federal government, and Garrison decides to close the investigation without taking it too far. Credits. That's the end of the movie.
5: (laughs) It's kind of funny, though. He's very much pushing forward right away that something's weird about David Ferry. He's like, all right. The Bureau is going to take him in and investigate this guy, and I'm sure they're going to find something on him. And then immediately they're making a public statement. David Ferry, there's nothing wrong with him. The only reason he was brought in is because Garrison wanted him to be.
0: (laughs) You're like,
4: okay. At that point, there really isn't any reason for a regular citizen to question anything yet. You wouldn't have had access to everything, to all the knowledge that X dumps out about how fast everything went. You wouldn't know that oh, they already had this story about Oswald all ready to go to be sent out to the press. You know, all the stuff he says later, you wouldn't know that. So it's like, okay, they found this guy. He seems like he was the guy. He gets killed, which is weird and sucks. But, okay, so Oswald spends some time in New Orleans. That's really all you have. And Ferry is like a weird guy, but you don't really have any proof of anything. It's just like, okay. In 1966, though, a couple of years after the Warren Commission... Releases the Warren Report. Garrison begins to have second thoughts. There's a great scene with Garrison on a plane with a character named Senator Long, played by Walter Matthau. Wild that Matthau and Lemon are both in this movie and not in the same scenes. Right, Matthau is the one that starts saying, yeah, I never believed any of that stuff about the lone gunman. It's a crock of shit, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah. And he really gets Garrison thinking because... I guess what you could read into it is that there's been an itch in the back of his mind in these three years. Oh, yeah. Something never quite seemed right. And maybe Garrison was like, you know, I'm a busy man. I'm not reading all the 26 volumes of this Warren report. And just sort of accepted it. And then he's finding out, well, wait a minute. Maybe I need to.
5: Right. All of a sudden, a lot of late nights in the office.
4: Senator Long is an amalgam character as well, I found out. But it is based off of a real interaction that Garrison had. The investigation is essentially reopened after Garrison reads the Warren report and notices what he believes to be multiple inaccuracies. So let's talk a little bit about the Warren report. Just a brief summary. The President's Commission on the Assassination of President Kennedy, known unofficially as the Warren Commission, was established by President Lyndon B. Johnson through executive order 11130 on November 29, 1963, to investigate the assassination of United States President John F. Kennedy that had taken place on November 22, 1963. The U.S. Congress passed Senate Joint Resolution 137 authorizing the Presidential Appointed Commission to report on the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, mandating the attendance and testimony of witnesses and the production of evidence. It's 888-page final report was presented to President Johnson on September 24, 1964, and made public three days later. It concluded that President Kennedy was assassinated by Lee Harvey Oswald and that Oswald acted entirely alone. It also concluded that Jack Ruby acted alone when he killed Oswald two days later. The commission's findings have been proven controversial and have been both challenged and supported by later studies. Sure.
5: Yeah, that's true. I guess one thing is that it does seem like there's a decent amount of documentaries out there. Like, were those Secret Service guys that were there that day basically are supportive of the Warren Report, essentially? Like, they only heard three shots. I, I mean, mean, yeah, but
4: they're in on it.
5: Yeah. <laughs> there's so much
4: material It's like out the there. fox investigating yeah. the chicken coop. <laughs> right. Alan Dulles gets appointed to the Warren Commission after the CIA basically demands it they needed one of their guys on the inside to make sure that the doors were closed that's right
5: (laughs) if there was something like some sort of conspiracy and we need the cover story and everything i don't know come up with a little bit more of a backstory for oswald for us give us something we can really chew on the why this is happening
4: you didn't think that his he just uh, anti-communist
5: that was it yeah
4: revolutionary well yeah they just wanted to create a simplistic lone nut Yep. With political motivation. And if you buy into the story, they created a guy to be this right. for years. Theoretically, it wouldn't necessarily be used for any one specific purpose. They may use him for anything else. But they have these guys that they're sending over to Russia. They're bringing back. They're getting involved with Cuba. It's a whole thing. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Alan Welsh Dulles born April 7, 1893, died January 29, 1969, was the first civilian director of Central Intelligence and its longest-serving director to date. As head of the Central Intelligence Agency, CIA, during the early Cold War, he oversaw the 1953 Iranian coup d'etat, the 1954 Guatemalan coup d'etat, the Lockheed U-2 aircraft program, the Project MK Ultra mind control program, and the Bay of Pigs invasion, he was fired by John F. Kennedy over the latter fiasco.
5: Wow. After a pretty impressive resume.
4: Dulles is the guy that I think is really at the heart of the conspiracy theory.
5: That's He's what I'm gathering.
4: The guy that could have done this and could have had enough power to cover it up. And we'll talk about how that would work more as we go, because... A lot of people push back on conspiracy theories because they're like, "Well, so many people would have to be involved. Yeah, nobody's talking."
5: That is the shocking part for to, this house of cards to come tumbling down. But you're relying on people not talking, and how do we go this long without somebody cracking?
4: That's the thing. I don't think that many people were involved. Yeah, okay. I think only like you could probably say like six to eight people knew what the plan was. Right, and okay. then other people follow orders. And they don't really know what's going on. Yeah. I think that if you set it up in the right way and you have people positioned in the right places, they're not all one thing. There's CIA, there's maybe mafia, there's maybe FBI, there's maybe secret service.
5: I'm starting to feel like I might die under mysterious circumstances following this podcast.
4: (laughs) Eventually, we get the Guy Bannister, Ed Asner's character, and Lee Harvey Oswald connection in New Orleans because... Oswald was handing out these pro-Castro leaflets stamped with an address that Some happened life. to be the same building where the anti-communist group headed by Bannister was. Yeah. They had two different entrances on two different streets, but it was the same building, which happened to also be surrounded by CIA, FBI, and a bunch of other stuff all in this one little corridor in New Orleans. <laughs> Guy Bannister is ex-FBI, anti-communist. A lot of these people going to lunch together. He became a private eye, and he seemed to be one of the potential ringleaders of whatever was going on in New Orleans that Lee Harvey Oswald would be a part of. But as Garrison points out to his team, it's a strange place for a communist to be when you have the FBI, CIA, Office of Naval Intelligence, et cetera, all in this little corner, and then all of a sudden there's this little (laughs) pro-communist... Handing out leaflets. (laughs) Seems strange and suspicious. Sure. Garrison and his staff begin interrogating people involved with Oswald and David Ferry. This is where Jack Lemon returns to the picture. By this point, Guy Bannister is dead. Jack Martin alludes to a conspiracy. He also provides motives against JFK. And he also provides a connection between Bannister, Ferry, and Oswald. But of course, he's unwilling to actually testify for fear of his own life. However, during these interviews and these discussions with Jack Martin and other people, the name Clay Bertrand starts coming up. And it's a name that will be tied in with the story. And Clay Bertrand is a name that actually appears in the Warren report. Mm. Clay Bertrand is an alleged alias associated with two people connected to various investigations regarding the assassination of President John F. Kennedy in 1963. New Orleans attorney, Dean Andrews Jr., which we'll get to later, testified to the Warren Commission on July 21st, 1964, that he received a call from Clay Bertrand the day after the assassination of Kennedy, asking him to fly to Dallas to represent the suspected assassin, Lee Harvey Oswald. The FBI had reported two weeks after the assassination that Andrews, who had been hospitalized with pneumonia, said he was under heavy sedation and had concluded that the call had been a figment of his imagination. Huh. This is all documented real nearly three years later on march 2nd 1967 the new orleans district attorney jim garrison asserted that clay bertrand was actually new orleans businessman clay shaw who had conspired with lee harvey oswald and david ferry to kill kennedy shaw who had been arrested and booked with conspiracy to commit murder denied that he had ever used the name
5: although they keep showing that flashback have you ever used any aliases clay bertrand
4: yeah it is strange how he's so willing to just say that and yeah it, it's inadmissible later <laughs> tommy lee jones portrays clay shaw the man that will stand trial for the assassination of kennedy the only man ever to do so pipe the bimbo in red hmm.
1: yeah she's cute all right but not
3: <laughs> half as cute <laughs> as you dino thank you. you should try a legitimate line of business why are you dancing on my head for, my man? We've been thick of molasses pie since last conning me,
1: Dean. I read your testimony, the Warren Commission. There you
3: go again, grain of salt. You tell it's them the South day North after North the, North North the assassination, North. you're called on the phone
1: by this Clay Bertrand and asked to fly to Dallas and be Lee Oswald's lawyer. Right. <laughs> That's pretty important, Dean. You also told the FBI that when you met him, he's six foot two. Then you tell the commission he's five foot eight. Now, how the hell does a man shrink like that, Dean?
3: They put the heat on my man, just like you doing. I gave him anything that popped in my cabeza. Truth is, I never met the dude. Oh, wonderful! W- one likes friends that have friends. Indeed. I don't know what the cat looks like, and furthermore, I don't know where he's at. All I know is sometimes he sends me some cases. So one day he's on the phone talking to me about going to Dallas, repping Oswald.
1: You ever speak to Oswald in Dallas?
3: Hell no! Like I told that Bertram cat right off. Cashew piece? This ain't my scene, man. I deal in Munich Court. I'm a hack in And how cow, the, and the hell did get hot the loan commission, B? Like I told to the Washington boys. Bertrand called that summer and asked me to help the kid upgrade his marine discharge.
2: Well, uh, I was uh, led to believe that uh, Mr. Uh,
3: Bertrand said that he would take care of oh, any... That's fine. Uh, Hello. To whom am I speaking? I'm Clay Burton. Whatever they owe, I'll guarantee There wasn't no conspiracy, Jim. If there were, why the hell didn't Bobby Kennedy prosecute it as attorney general? He was his brother, for Christ's sake. How the fuck all those people could keep a secret like that, I don't know. It was Oswald. It was a fruitcake. You know, communication problem,
1: Dean. I know you know who Clay Bertrand is, all right. Now stop eating that damn crab meat a minute and listen. I'm aware of our friendship, but I want you to know I'm gonna call you in front of the grand jury. And you lie to the grand jury, you've been lying to me. I'm gonna charge you with perjury. All right now, I took nine judges on right here in New Orleans, Dino. I beat them all. So am I communicating with you?
3: Is this off the record, Daddy O? Good. In that case, let me sum it up for you real quick. If I answer that question you keep asking, if I give you the name of the big enchilada, you know, then it's Bonvoyardino. I mean, like plumbing it. I mean, like a bullet in my head. You dig? Your mouse fighting a gorilla. Kennedy's as dead as that crab meat. The government's still breathing. You want to line up with a dead man? My lips,
1: Dino, either you dance into the grand jury with the real identity of Claire Bertrand or your fat behind's going to
3: the slammer. Now, you dig me? You're as crazy as your mama. Goes to show it's in the jeans. You have any idea what you're getting yourself into, daddy-o? The government's going to jump all over your head, Jimbo, and go cock-a-doodle-doo. Good day to you, sir.
4: Dean Andrews is played by John Candy. He's the lawyer further connecting Bertrand to Oswald.
5: An appearance here. What year did John Candy die?
4: He was 94.
5: Okay, so we were getting close. <laughs>
4: Candy is a spitting image of Dean Andrews. Oh, really? The glasses, those sunglasses, the look, it's wow. exactly the same. I think Dean Andrews talked that way, saying things like Daddy O and you dig. Oh, yeah. It's all very real. I think Kennedy was very nervous, and the sweat that you see in his scenes in the film is real. He put a lot of pressure on himself to perform well in a dramatic role because all of a sudden he's in a movie with guys like Tommy Lee Jones and Donald Sutherland. Yeah, a little
5: bit of a shakeup for him.
4: Yeah, he always had a a thing about wanting to become a dramatic actor and he was very proud of his work in films like Only the Lonely and stuff where he's not just like doing straight comedy. Right. And this is like one of his opportunities to sort of be a character actor here. One witness interviewed is Willie O'Keefe played by kevin bacon <laughs> i love this guy i love the scene when they're interviewing him bacon considered this a career revitalizer for him oh wow things weren't going particularly great although tremors hello yeah he says that this film got him a few good men and then he was off and running again wow o'keefe is a male prostitute serving five years in prison for soliciting who says he witnessed fairy disgust assassinating the president as well as briefly meeting oswald and being romantically involved with clay bertrand we get some of the most
5: fun backstory of the whole movie (laughs) in his little explanations
6: i didn't think much about it at the time it's just bullshit you know everybody likes to make themselves out to be something more than they are especially in the homosexual underworld when they got him man i got scared real scared That's when I got popped.
1: You realize the things you're saying, Willie, are gonna be attacked
6: by a lot of different people? Oh, bring all those motherfuckers on, man. Bring their college degrees in here. I got nothing to hide. You can't buy me. They can't buy me. I don't even need this damn parole. See, this is about the truth coming out. You a goddamn liberal, Mr. Garrison. You don't know shit cause you never been fucked in the ass. This ain't about justice. You think this is about justice? No, this is about order. Who rules? Because, see, fascism is coming back. Nobody
1: wants to buy you. No one's promising you a parole here. I want to be perfectly clear about that. What
6: I need to know is why, all right? Why are you telling us this? Because that motherfucker, Kennedy, stole that motherfucking election. That's why. Nixon was going to be one of the great presidents till Kennedy wrecked this country got niggers all over the place ask for their damn rights why you think we got all this crime now you promised those motherfuckers too goddamn much you ask me revolutions coming bullshit man fascism is coming back i'm gonna tell you this the day that communist son of a bitch died was a great day a great day
4: for this country this is a wild segment and a wild performance (laughs) from bacon there's a lot of shit being thrown at you with flashbacks and different stuff i know
5: and it these party sequences and The discussions that are happening there, this was completely unexpected for me.
4: The whole thing with them planning to come up with a way for Castro's beard to fall out is based off of a real leaked CIA plan at one point that they came up with or something. Oh, wow. There's a lot of ridiculous documents when it comes to Cuba and Castro. They thought that having his beard fall out would be like some big win. (laughs) So I think that's just sort of goofing on that and having... Is it David Ferry who says that? I don't even remember, or is it... One of them says yeah, it yeah. at one of those parties. It's hard to remember. Although, Kevin Bacon has like one of my favorite
5: lines in the whole movie, when it's just like, that's because you've never been fucked in the ass!
4: <laughs> yeah, he's hitting on Garrison, it's a whole thing. <laughs> There's a lot of issues with this character, and we'll get into that more later. Yeah. I think, as
5: the viewer, and especially me not really knowing where the movie's heading... You are already getting this whole thing of, like, whatever story he's building does seem to be based off of not really necessarily credible information.
4: Yeah, he's chasing a lot of wild leads. And I think Stone even admitted that in that one quote, that he was following the words of a lot of not necessarily trustworthy people. But the fact remains that Oswald spent time in New Orleans... He did stamp that address on those pamphlets. There does seem to be some sort of a connection between both the anti-communist and the pro-communist facade. Uh Guy Bannister may have been involved. It's possible that David Ferry knew Oswald as well, although I don't think they ever really proved it. And then it's the bigger step to go up to the next level with Clay Shaw that they really never could actually prove. right? And it was all a lot of... Whispers in the wind and conjecture, and, and conjecture, and whatnot. Part of the story, though, is that Garrison and his team start encountering dead witnesses, a lot of them involved on November 22nd, 1963, in Dallas. There's the parking lot attendant who says that he saw the men standing by the fence, that guy dies in a mysterious car uh-huh. accident. There's the prostitute linking Jack Ruby with Oswald before the assassination, which is one of the more fascinating elements of the story in general is this idea that Ruby and Oswald knew each other before the assassination. Right.
5: Of course, David Ferry, well, at least in the movie, (laughs) starts to all of a sudden become a confidant to Garrison and isn't long for the world after that.
4: They also discover the three tramps. Oh, The three tramps are three men photographed by several Dallas-area newspapers under police escort near the Texas School Book Depository shortly after the assassination of United States President JFK. Since the mid-1960s, various allegations have been made about the identities of the men and their involvement in a conspiracy to kill Kennedy. There's no record of their arrests, no identification, no one knows who these men are. Mm. But they've always been at the center of the story. At one point, Woody Harrelson's father, Charles who was convicted of murder several times in his life and was a hitman, confessed to being a part of the JFK assassination, even drew up diagrams or plans or something like that, although he was eventually dismissed as credible by the FBI, he has been attributed as being one of those men in that picture. Uh, I don't know that that's ever been confirmed. Sure. But people say that he's one of the three men. It's also interesting that the opposing side in court in Garrison's trial is harry connick senior
5: yeah i know when i saw that name i was like really
4: yeah so it's an interesting little bit of americana that sure. some famous people's parents were involved in this
5: <laughs> and didn't harry connick senior actually end up succeeding garrison as district attorney in new orleans i thought i saw that
4: that's possible yeah, yeah. i don't know the team's investigative work and covers a lot that does not add up about who Lee Harvey Oswald was from his Russian defection to his return to the U S who his friends were, where he spent his time, how he purchased the rifle that allegedly killed Kennedy to what happened with Marina, his wife after the fact and how she was kept away for months. And then all of a sudden was giving these very rehearsed answers to everything. <laughs> and the thing about Oswald's defection to Russia and his return to the United States, is one of the things that never is explained by anybody who refutes these conspiracy theories. I never understand how they can gloss over that part. Because in that time period, Russia and the United States were engaged with the Cold War. Defecting to Russia was akin to joining the Taliban or something. You wouldn't just be able to come back, especially without even being debriefed. And as Laurie Metcalf's character says especially not able to bring back your Russian sweetheart without any question about it. And <laughs> yeah, they're just bizarre. let back into the country as if nothing happened. Right. Which makes you think that screams intelligence connection as if he was put over there yeah, yeah. by an intelligence agency as part of something bigger. And even in the documentary, there's... Internal memos dated as early as 1960, listing questions about specific people who had defected, and his name is in them, and I think it comes from as high as J. or Hoover. Yeah. It's like, what's the deal with this guy? What's the deal with this guy? And he's one of the names. Well, clearly, something's going on.
5: Definitely (laughs) these things shrouded in mystery when there's that much of a a history here.
4: And uh, again, this is something that will be reiterated throughout the rest of this, but I do think that the strength of... The case, not the film, but the case made by the film is the Dallas stuff and the Oswald stuff. The more invented material feels like the New Orleans stuff and the Mr. X stuff.
5: Yeah, yeah. But even going back to the Andrews interview, like, at the lunch that they're having, he's basically saying, I can't tell you that or they'll kill me. Yes. Like, you know, he's really putting it out there that there is this bigger thing at play.
4: Yes. But... It's a movie, so we don't really know if he actually said. Well, that, that in but real I'm life.
5: I'm considering that. I yeah, I'm thinking that that's fictional. That well, that's probably we really from know.
4: Garrison saying that. that yeah, happened. yeah. He did change his testimony from this guy named Clay Bertrand called me to go represent Oswald to I made it up because I was on drugs for pneumonia or Which something seems in the hospital.
5: Insane.
1: When he's arrested, Marina buries him with the public. Her description of him is that of a psychotic and violent man.
0: I have too much facts and. Facts tell me that Lee shot Kennedy.
1: After they kept her locked away for two months surrounded by federal people and fearing she'd be deported back to Russia, right? the poor woman was probably suffering from nervous exhaustion. They taught her how to answer. And when they think she's ready, they buy new dresses, polish her appearance, and wheel her out on cue. I would like to thank the Warren Commission. Now Oswald was no angel, that's clear. But who was he? I'm lost, boss. What are we saying here? We're saying that when Oswald went to Russia, he was not a real defector. That he was an intelligence agent on some kind of mission for our government and remained one until the day he died. That's what we're saying.
2: Therefore, because Oswald pulled the trigger, the intelligence community murdered their own commander in chief? Is that what you say? I'll go
1: you one better, Bill. Maybe Oswald didn't even pull the trigger. Nitrate tests indicate he hadn't even fired a rifle on November 22nd. And on top of that, they didn't even bother to see if the rifle had been fired that day. He had his palm print on the weapon. Well, it went to the FBI bill. The FBI didn't find a goddamn thing. It comes back a week later and one guy in the Dallas Police Department suddenly finds a palm print. For all we know, it could have been taken off Oswald in the morgue. There's no chain of evidence.
7: I never could figure out why this guy orders a traceable weapon to this post office box when he's going into any store in Texas. Give a phony name and walk out with a rifle, which can never be traced. To frame him, obviously.
1: There's a lot of smoke there, but there's some fire. We're talking about our government here. No, we're talking about a crime, Bill, pure and simple. Y'all gotta start thinking on a different level, like the CIA does. Now, we're through the looking glass here, people. White is black, and black is white. Just maybe Oswald is exactly what he said he was, a patsy.
4: They essentially theorize that Oswald was an agent of the intelligence agency and was framed for the assassination. In 1967, Garrison and his team talked to several witnesses to the Kennedy assassination, all of which seemed to contradict the Warren report, all supporting the idea of shots coming from other locations aside from the book depository where Oswald was supposedly stationed. Parking lot, grassy knoll, Uh etc.
5: The bullet thing is brought up a million times but. It does seem like there's a lot of wounds for only three, or I guess four bullets.
4: Yeah, and the direction from which the bullets came, which seems to be supported by the Zapruder film. I know there's yeah. people that push back against that. There's people that push in both ways sure. with everything. Absolutely. They speak with Jean Hill, a teacher who says she witnessed a gunman shooting from the grassy knoll, that Secret Service threatened her into saying three shots came from the book depository and her testimony was altered by the Warren Commission. Norma Jean. Oh, yes. Lolas Hill. <laughs> what are the chances her name is Norma Jean? <laughs> was an eyewitness to the assassination of United States President John F. Kennedy in Dallas, Texas on November twenty-second, 1963. Hill was known as the Lady in Red because of the long raincoat she wore that day, as seen in Abraham Zapruder's film of the assassination. Oh. A teacher by profession, she was a consultant for Oliver Stone's 1991 film JFK and co-wrote JFK, The Last Dissenting witness with Bill Sloan. Hmm. Hill's claims have been both disputed and embraced. While official sources have considered her an unreliable witness for a number of reasons, why not the researchers investigating the assassination and the conclusions of the Warren Commission consider her a highly credible witness. They point to significant circumstantial evidence of an apparent smear campaign to undermine the testimony and credibility of Hill, the closest civilian witness to the assassination and its immediate aftermath. Oh, yeah. And as you can see in JFK, she is standing right next to the car, essentially, when it is struck by the shots. Oh,
5: right. This idea of discrediting what seems to be a plausibly credible person is definitely a theme of the movie because they really hammer you with that Garrison is under attack by the media and everything. And to us, he's the guy that we're buying into as the audience.
4: Yeah. And there's obviously parallels between Garrison and Stone. Right. And then parallels between them and anyone who gave differing accounts accounts of what happened than what the official account was. One of the more interesting scenes that come out of this little scenario here after they talk to Gene Hill and then they talk to some other people who are hanging around who witnessed different things like that truck being pulled over. And I love that in this movie you can just be like, well, let's make that Brian Doyle Murray sitting <laughs> there in that truck. And all of a sudden Ruby's everywhere and there's that woman... In the film, I don't know if I wrote her name down or not, who identified Jack Ruby as being one of these men before he shot Oswald. Right, right. I don't know if that's real or not. Yeah, yeah. It's just one of those things where you're like, what the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) And then there's even more links between Ruby and Oswald that come out. Garrison and Lou, while in Dallas, also test fire an empty rifle from the Texas School Book Depository from which Oswald was alleged to have shot Kennedy and conclude that Oswald was too poor a marksman to make the shots, indicating the likelihood of multiple shooters.
5: I do like that they're just walking into this building with a
4: rifle. (laughs) It was a different time. Yeah. (laughs) There's some wild shit about the rifle in the JFK Revisited Dock 2, which seemed to indicate that the rifle in possession now in evidence, could not be the same rifle.
5: <laughs> I saw some of that too. That yeah. was
4: ordered by Oswald that the strap was attached in different places yeah. and there's big inconsistency. And then there's that one picture where his wedding ring seems to be on a different finger where it seems like they created that one picture. Yeah. Which they sort of do in the movie too, but they kind of gloss over what's happening. Where I think Lori Metcalf is talking and then gets over top of them creating that picture that was the cover of Time Magazine. Right, right. They're like, putting his head on top of another person.
5: <laughs> Yeah. They get into it in the movie a little bit that's like, why is this guy using this rifle that's clearly like registered to him when you're in a state that you can just walk into like any store and get an untraceable gun yeah. under like an alias? I guess like the counterpoint would be not bright. Yeah, he's just not a smart guy and I mean he just set out to do this.
4: Yeah, that is not enough that's just a, one of those things that's just weird. That's not really proof sure. of anything. It's just
5: another one of these little things that's thrown in there.
4: Yeah. You would think that he would know in Texas that he wouldn't even have to go through the bother of ordering it through the mail, but right. like it does seem that as if they've set him up so that there will be a trace of this particular weapon that they're yes, gonna yes. dump in the depository. of film establishes three shots in five point six seconds.
7: Yeah. I'm Oswald. Time me. Go.
1: Time? Between six, seven seconds.
7: And that's without really aiming. The key is the second and third shots came almost right on top of each other. It takes a minimum 2.3 seconds to recycle this thing. The other problem is there was a tree there blocking the first two shots. From the time they occurred there's a prudipump.
1: Mr. J. Edgar Hoover say something about that? Leaves are falling off in November. It
7: was a Texas live oak, Chief. It sheds its leaves the first week of March. So you take this Carcano, world's worst shoulder weapon, and you try to hit a moving target at 88 yards through heavy foliage? No way. Yeah. The FBI tried two sets of tests. Not one of their sharpshooters could match Oswald's performance. Not one. And Oswald was, at best, a medium shot. The scope was defective on it, too. I mean, this is the whole essence of the case to me. The guy couldn't do the shooting. Nobody could. And they sold this lemon to the American public. fruit of film is the proof that didn't count on, Lou.
1: we got to get our hands on it.
7: That means we have to subpoena time live.
1: Let me ask you something, Lou. Why not just shoot Kennedy coming up Houston? There's plenty of time.
7: He's out in the open. I know, I keep asking myself the same thing. frontal shot. Even if you miss him for the first shot, if he accelerates, you still got him for the second shot. No, the only reason for waiting to get him on Elm is you got him in a triangulated crossfire. You put a team there on that defense for a frontal shot, flat, low trajectory, put a third team, down here in this building here, on a low floor. Kennedy gets the kill zone there. It's a turkey shoot. How many men? Okay. Not one shooter at one spot on a radio. Maybe three teams. I'd say these professional riflemen, too, chief, they're serious people. Hunters. Patient. Skill to kill with the rifle chief. You gotta figure that's why there's been no execution of a chief executive with one in 200 years. Three, two,
4: one. This section to me is the strength of the film in terms of the real-world case against the Warren Report's version of the events. The Texas stuff, as opposed to some of the New Orleans stuff. The New Orleans stuff is fascinating, and it it provides for great opportunities for great actors to give wild performances. I think, though, when you research what happened in court in real life, you sort of see that this other stuff crumbles, and even the movie at a certain point has to sort of swerve and be like, well, we're just going to prove that there probably was a conspiracy, but it we're not going to really be able to yeah. prove that it, what it was. Clay yeah. Shaw or anything like that. But the information throughout pretty much the entire runtime of the film just comes at you fast and furious. It's impossible to handle it all unless you're already halfway down the rabbit hole. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you're just sort of latching on to different things and as you're watching the movie, it, it's not a bad idea to even have your phone open to Wikipedia and oh, sure. and click on yeah. some of the things that we've been going through. Like, oh, here's some more information about Jack Ruby, or here's some information about Alan Dulles, or this is w- what was going on with this witness, or that witness. Pretty much all of these people have their own Wikipedia pages. They are all <laughs> right. significant figures in this insane story. Yeah,
5: yeah. Now, on the Clay Shaw thing... You always hear that you need so much to even be able to take something to trial, but I guess maybe Garrison doesn't need much because he's a district attorney?
4: Sure, yeah, he would generally be the one deciding.
5: Yeah, yeah, if something's going.
4: His opinion, though, on some of these witnesses was probably different than how the public was going to perceive them. That's true. I think Stone has talked about that, too, where, especially in the 60s still, people that had any sort of criminal record or if they could find a past of smoking dope or prostitution or anything, that was enough to dismiss them out of hand. Wow. This is not... That's
5: eliminating a lot of people. Yeah, exactly.
4: And so I think you could read into it that Garrison saw there was more value in some of these witnesses than maybe the, the court would or the court of public opinion would, but Garrison also potentially did some shady things that we'll get into more later some of the stuff that's mentioned in the movie but never shown or addressed seems to have actually happened but we'll talk about that later some of the major things though that are addressed in sort of rapid fire is how garrison dismisses out of hand the possibility that it could have been the mafia because of the changing of the parade route in dallas and then having the extra secret service not be there as they usually would be, all of these different things to set up the triangulation of shots in that one particular kill zone. It just seemed way beyond the capability of the mafia, for example, that had to come from higher. And then in something that is just so perfect for a movie like this and it almost like makes you laugh where he's able to connect oh yeah the mayor of Dallas to <laughs> Alan Dulles <laughs> right. in like two moves. Yeah, yeah. You're like, well guess who his brother is? <laughs> And you're like, holy shit. Yeah. And then, of course, Clay Shaw is connected to all of them somehow, That's right. In his mind, at least. Susie comes in with some more Oswald inconsistencies, which are explored further in the doc. But it seems as if, in order to fit this conspiracy idea with Oswald taking the fall, that they were setting up a fake Oswald to go around and do things in Dallas to get noticed. Okay, Beyond Frank, the radar. Frank Whaley plays Oswald in these scenes. Yeah, yeah. Because it's not the real Oswald. I guess Whaley was originally going to be Oswald. Oh, wow. And this was almost his consolation, I guess, when they brought in Oldman to do it. But Oswald essentially is, is functioning as a pawn here. He's being moved around a chessboard and doing the things that they want him to do. And even when he's not doing it, they essentially have a fake one doing it so that people will later testify that they met a guy named Lee Harvey Oswald who was talking about shooting Kennedy or talking right. about doing this yeah. or that or practicing at a gun range or things of that nature. He's almost likened to a dummy corporation and less of a human being. Yeah,
5: yeah. Now we're talking an elaborate scheme.
1: Mr. Shaw, this is an Italian newspaper article saying that you were a member of the Board of Central Mondo Commercial in Italy, that this company was a creature of the CIA for the transfer of funds in Italy. For legal political espionage activity, it says that this company was expelled from Italy for those activities.
7: I'm well aware of that S9 article. I'm thinking very seriously of suing that rag. It please. also Piper. says that
1: this company is linked to the Slumber J Tool Company here in Homer, Louisiana, which helped provide arms to David Fair and his Cubans. <laughs>
7: Mr. Garrison, you're reaching. Am I? I'm an international businessman. The trademark which I founded is America's commercial pipeline to Latin America. I trade
3: everywhere.
7: I am accused, as are all businessmen of all things, I somehow go about my business, make money, help society the best I can, and try to promote free trade in this world. Mr. Shaw, have you ever been a contract agent
1: for the Central Intelligence Agency?
7: And if I were, Mr. Garrison, do you believe I would be here today talking to somebody like you? No.
1: People like you don't have to, I guess. May I go? People like you, they just walk between the raindrops. May I go? Yes.
7: Regardless of what you may think of me, Mr. Garrison, I am a patriot, first and foremost. I've
1: spent half my life in the United States military, serving and defending this great country, Mr. Shaw. And you're the first person I ever met who considered an act of patriotism to murder his own president.
3: Now, just a minute, sir. You are way out of line.
2: I'm sorry, Mr. Shaw. It's getting late. That's all the questions we have. Thank you for your honesty and for coming in today. And
7: I enjoyed meeting you gentlemen. And you, Miss Cox, was most pleasant. I wish to extend to each of you and to each of your families my best wishes for a happy Easter.
1: One may smile and smile smiling and be a villain. God damn it, we got one of them.
4: Did you see that? Through various interviews in New Orleans, Garrison and his team come to believe New Orleans-based international businessman Clay Shaw is the same man as Bertrand. They bring Shaw in for questioning, and he denies being Bertrand and also denies any knowledge of meeting David Ferry, Willie O'Keefe, or Lee Harvey Oswald. The press gets wind of what's happening, and everything explodes. David Ferry starts bugging out. This is also... A scene that likely did not happen in real life with David sure. Ferry starting to talk about a conspiracy I know. to kill Kennedy. <laughs>
5: just putting it all out there. He really explains everything that is going to happen, at least in the Garrison version.
4: Yeah, there is a little bit of wishful thinking, I think, on the part of Stone a couple of times in this film. Where he feels like he's confident enough in what he believes happened to make it just that simple. Where a right. character just steps in and just says it. Here's how you could do it. Even the shooters don't know. Yeah. Don't you get it? <laughs> <laughs> it's a mystery wrapped in a riddle in an enigma. <laughs> it's like, what, what, you know, he starts saying all this just crazy shit. Be
5: at this party.
4: His wild eyebrows and yeah. that wig sliding all over
5: just his head. Just sounds like he's on like massive amounts of cocaine.
8: Black, black, just give it to me. Black. Shit, my neck is killing I got cancer. I've had it for years. I've been working with mice, you know, trying to find a cure.
1: Did you ever work for the
8: CIA? <sighs> you make it sound like some remote fucking experience in ancient history. But man, you don't leave the agency. Once you in, you, they got you for life. Shaw? Mm. Shaw? Shaw's an untouchable, highest clearance. Shaw, I the Cubans, all agency. What about Ruby? <coughs> Jack. Jack was a pimp. He was a bag man for the Dallas mob. He used to run guns to Castro when he was still on our side. Mm. We almost had Castro with us, then we tried to whack him. Everybody's flipping sides all the time. It's funny games, man, funny games. What
7: about the mob, Dave? How do they thinking
8: this? The agency, too, man. CIA and the mafia working together, trying to whack out the beard, mutual interest. They've been doing it for years. There's more than this than you could dream. Well, oh, check out something called uh, Mongoose, Operation Mongoose. Mongoose? Uh, government, Pentagon stuff. Uh, they charge, but who the fuck pulls whose chain? Who the fuck knows? Oh, what a deadly web we weave when we practice to deceive.
1: Then who killed the president? Oh,
8: man, why don't you fucking stop it? Shit, who did... This is too fucking big for you, you know that? This is... Who did the president? Who killed... Get... Fuck, man! It's, it's a mystery! It's a mystery wrapped in a riddle inside an enigma! The fucking shooters don't even know, don't you get it? Fuck, man! I can't keep talking like this. You're gonna fucking kill me! I'm gonna fucking die! Son of a bitch! I don't know what happened. Fuck. All I wanted in the world was to be a Catholic priest, live in a monastery, pray, serve God. I had one fucking, one, one terrible fucking weakness. And they defrocked me.
2: And then I started to lose everything.
1: It's going to be OK, Dad. You just talk to us on the record. We'll protect you. I guarantee it. they get to
8: you, too. They'll destroy you. They're untouchable, man. I'm so fucking exhausted, I can't see straight.
4: It turns into an entire media circus down in New Orleans. Everybody's freaking out about what's going on. Because you have to remember, to a large part of the country, this case is closed. So what the fuck is happening? Right, right. If all of a sudden someone is saying that there was a conspiracy to kill the president, that's something completely different than just one guy, obviously. Yeah. That's what the whole thing is about. And they find that their office is bugged at a certain point in the DA's office.
5: Yeah, which is interesting. Again, it's one of those things, it's like, is that real? Who knows? Was there some paranoia going on, potentially, from Garrison's account?
4: Some witnesses are too scared to testify, while others, such as Ruby and Ferry, are killed in somewhat suspicious circumstances. In the film, David Ferry has a suspicious suicide. This is really played up for drama oh yeah there was never really any evidence of anything suspicious in real life they make it seem like it is and they make it seem as if garrison has but basically cracked the code of how it could happen right but
5: this is like immediately following fairy basically revealing himself
4: their whole case is basically well he seemed terrified to die why is he going to kill himself but maybe he realized it would be easier to go that way who knows yeah he did have cancer for a long time and was trying to discover a cure using mice or something. I don't know. <laughs> Jack Ruby, his death is not really covered in the film. There's this bizarre deleted scene where he, he's shown in prison being injected with cancer cells, which thankfully they took out because I think it's it's asking a lot even for yeah, this yeah. movie. You're like, what the fuck?
5: We're, we're willing to suspend disbelief, but you can't have it so far slated in one direction.
4: He was actually awaiting retrial. His conviction for the murder of Oswald had been overturned. He had been sentenced to death and then he was awaiting retrial when he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and died very quickly thereafter. There's an interesting chapter in the book that we've talked about a little bit on this podcast called Chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA and the Secret History of the 60s by Tom O'Neill where they basically connect a guy that had ties with Manson and the CIA and everything else showing up and spending time with Ruby and potentially uh-huh. using some sort of MKUltra LSD technique on him to be make him not talk or something okay. to that effect. It's a wild story, but there is some documentation yeah. and some letters that were found in various archives of these people that worked for the CIA and whatnot.
5: No, yeah, I was telling you when I was just doing like a little bit of Brief research on it, just looking at like Wikipedia or whatever. When I saw like Bugliosi's name pop up, yeah, it made me go back to that. Well,
4: Bugliosi, after the success of Helter Skelter the book, he Uh wrote a lot of true crime books, even with cases he wasn't like directly involved with. But yeah, it is a weird connection, right? Speaking of connections, the rumors around Ruby were always that he had mafia connections and whatnot. It's later revealed in one of the various assassination review boards that they put together in Congress over the decades that Ruby did in fact work occasionally as an FBI informant, which was not revealed in the Warren Report. There's a lot of questionable things with Jack Ruby. As you were saying, and I agree with, it's just like Oswald defecting to Russia and coming back. It's one of those unexplained things that's just hard to wrap your head around. Even if you don't want to buy into a conspiracy, yeah, how did this guy walk into this space with all of these cops and just walk right up to a prisoner, the most famous right. prisoner in the world <laughs> yeah, at that yeah. moment, and shoot him on live television? It's a pretty damning review of the Dallas police force. <laughs> at the very
5: least. Yeah. But also, I could have used more of a motive from Jack Ruby.
4: During the six months following Kennedy's assassination, Ruby repeatedly asked orally and in writing to speak to the members of the Warren Commission. The commission initially showed no interest. Only after Ruby's sister Eileen wrote letters to the commission and her letters became public did the Warren Commission agree to talk to Ruby. In June 1964, Chief Justice Earl Warren, then Representative Gerald R. Ford of Michigan... Yes, that's right. Gerald Ford, who became president, was on the Warren Commission. All right. And other commission members went to Dallas to see Ruby. Ruby asked Warren several times to take him to Washington, D.C., saying my life is in danger here, and that he wanted an opportunity to make additional statements. He added, I want to tell the truth, and I can't tell it here. Warren told Ruby that he would be unable to comply because many legal barriers would need to be overcome and public interest in the situation would be too heavy. Warren also told Ruby that the commission would have no way of protecting him since it had no police powers. That sounds like bullshit. Yeah, really. Ruby said that he wanted to convince President Lyndon Johnson that he was no part of any conspiracy to kill Kennedy.
5: You're telling me that they would not have been able to leverage something to get him to D.C.? That seems nuts.
4: Yeah, I mean, I, I just think they didn't even want to bother. Well, yeah.
5: Okay, that I could buy. Obviously... I know we were talking about the dead president at the time, but they didn't really care about any policies when they just t- took his body straight out of Dallas. So, like, yeah, this isn't really protocol. It's like, yeah, well, BFD, we're doing what we want.
4: Well, these were some heavy hitters. I think they could have put together, like, a yeah, a police escort and gotten permission from the right authorities in Dallas or wherever this jail was. To I, be able I think to do so, this. Yeah. Seemingly out of nowhere, Garrison flies to Washington, D.C. and meets with a high-level government figure who identifies himself simply as X. Yeah. Played by Donald Sutherland.
5: Really great in a small appearance, like many of the actors in this movie, but this obviously is the iconic scene of the movie.
4: This is 16 glorious, paranoid, crazy minutes. Oh, yeah. His delivery is like so great. Yeah, there's just something about this performance where you completely buy it, even though the stuff he says at the beginning is so generic and ridiculous.
5: And Costner has, like, for all the people that he's interviewing and talking to in the movie, he has, like, a a dominant presence in each scene. But in this scene, he's being dominated.
4: Marlon Brando was actually considered for this part, which I can't imagine how that would have worked. What was his weight at the time? Well, considering Brando could never memorize any lines. Yeah, I know, it's so long. Yeah, apparently Sutherland memorized this entire thing, and they did it all in one take sometimes. I don't think they used it all in one take, but he was he would have been able to. I, I just can't imagine Brando. Like, how would that have worked? Yeah, yeah. Although I think that Stone probably saw the benefit of a stunt cast here. I think it worked out for the best because Sutherland's perfect, but I think he wanted somebody that would have carried some sort of weight with the viewer right. like that
5: like a big star that shows up in the middle of the movie for this one scene.
4: Yeah. He probably saw that as something that would have like rocked people's world. Yeah. Yeah. This interaction between Garrison and X becomes the heart of the picture. It's riveting and fascinating and
5: really takes the conspiracy to the next level.
4: Even if it's only 10% true, it's entirely shocking and maybe the most insane thing that's <laughs> yeah, yeah. ever happened. Even just 10% of this, if that's real, you're like, what the fuck? Right. <laughs> But it's also really the least provable part of the film. You have one guy who's a composite character who conveniently shows up and explains everything and fills in all of the blanks. Uh huh. But and even
5: it, if you're taking just the movie at face value and the garrison in the movie is taking this case to trial, he can't do anything with all the information he's getting here.
4: No. He has to try to prove it after yeah. the fact is essentially how it's even left by... X, where he's like, "Well, you're on the right track. Just keep going." Right. This, of course, is one of the biggest lightning rods in the film. Even for people who were maybe willing to buy into a certain sure. point, this is so crazy. He's talking about a coup d'état from within yeah. our own government, potentially that involved like Johnson Lyndon being involved, Johnson and other people. That's- I think you could even read into it a step further, though, that Lyndon Johnson was just going along with it. That he's sure. not even at that level of orchestrating something like this. Well, there's
5: maybe a Manchurian candidate argument to what Johnson was a guy that they could control.
4: Yeah. Johnson was like, yeah, sure. We'll go back. I'll sign whatever you want to keep Vietnam Vietnam going. Yeah. Yeah, we'll do that. Yeah. A lot of stones arguments hinge on the fact that JFK was all set to pull out of Vietnam. And then when Johnson is sworn into office, literally almost immediately reverses course entirely. Right on Vietnam and then they
5: hit that heavy in this scene.
4: It leads the country into that and X is saying think about how much money will be invested in that and who profits from that and it's 230 billion or uh, no, it's 220 and they say that at the end of the film in those words that come on the screen.
5: And obviously this is stuff that is very close to Oliver Stone's interests, especially if Yeah, you've I seen think for him connecting
4: JFK's assassination to Vietnam is crucial.
5: But even the idea of all of this money, and it's like when you think about all the people who were sent over to Vietnam and died, under this idea that all these people are profiting to $200 and $300 billion net total,
0: Yeah, it's a, a dark tale. And don't underestimate the budget cuts that Kennedy called for in March of 63 either. Nearly 52 military installations in 25 states, 21 overseas bases. You're talking big money you know how many helicopters have been lost in Vietnam? Hmm? Nearly 3,000 so far. Who makes that? Bell Helicopter. Who owns Bell? Well, Bell was nearly bankrupt when the First National Bank of Boston approached the CIA about developing the helicopter for Indochina usage. How about the F-111 fighter? General Dynamics of Fort Worth, Texas. Who owns that? Find out the defense budget since the war began. 75, going on 100 billion. Nearly 200 billion will be spent before it's over. In 1949, it was 10 billion, no war, no money. The organizing principle of any society, Mr. Garrison, is for war. The authority of the state over its people resides in its war powers. And Kennedy wanted to end the Cold War in his second term. He wanted to call off the moon race in favor of cooperation with the Soviets. He signed a treaty with the Soviets to ban nuclear testing. He refused to invade Cuba in 1962, and he set out to withdraw from Vietnam. But all of that ended on the 22nd of November, 1963. As early as 1961, they knew Kennedy was not going to go to war in Southeast Asia. Like Caesar, he is surrounded by enemies and something's underway. But it has no face, yet everybody in the loop knows. You
3: can forget about your combat troops. He told McNamara he is gonna pull out the goddamned advisors. He fucked us in Laos, and now he is gonna fuck us in goddamn Vietnam. He won't implement it before the election. He can't afford to. I hear the NSC meeting was a real barn burner. I wouldn't have missed it for the world. Heads are going to roll everywhere. Did you hear what Lemnitzer did? What happened? Kennedy tried to rub Lem's nose in shit, saying if we didn't go into Cuba, which is so close, why should we go into Vietnam, which is so far away? Son of a bitch. There he goes again. He's got his hands on the chicken switch.
0: Anyway, Lem
3: said that the chiefs still think we ought to go into Cuba.
0: Money's <laughs> the thing. Big money. $100 billion. Kennedy brothers target voting districts for those defense dollars. They give TFX fighter contracts only to those counties that are going to make a difference in 64 and the people in the loop. They fight back their way. We have to control the intelligence from
7: Saigon. Well, just don't let McNamara start sticking his damn nose in this thing. Every time he goes over to Saigon on some fucking fact-finding mission, he comes back and just scares the shit out of the president. Now, won't Max Taylor on him night and day like a fly
0: on shit. Now you control McNamara, and you control Kennedy. I think it started like that, in the wind. Defense contractors, big oil bankers, just conversations, nothing more. Then a call is made, maybe to someone like my superior officer, General Y.
3: Yeah. We're
0: going.
1: We need your help. When? In the fall, probably in
0: the south. We want you to come up with a- I can do that. Everything is cellularized. No one has said he must die. There's been no vote. Nothing's on paper. There's no one to blame. It's as old as the crucifixion a military firing squad. Five bullets, one blank, no one's guilty because everyone in the power structure who knows anything has a plausible deniability. There are no compromising connections except at the most secret point. But what's paramount? is that it must succeed. No matter how many die, no matter how much it costs, the perpetrators must be on the winning side and never subject to prosecution for anything, by anyone. That is a coup d'etat.
4: X suggests a coup d'etat at the highest levels of government, implicating members of the CIA, the mafia, the military-industrial complex, the Secret Service, FBI, and Kennedy's vice president at the time of his death, Lyndon B. Johnson who was, of course, then sworn in as president, all as co-conspirators or as having motives to cover up the truth of the assassination. He also suggests that Kennedy was killed because he wanted to pull the United States out of Vietnam and dismantle the CIA. Yeah. Essentially, what X does is just lay out a lot of potential people that could have been involved and then various motives. He never really provides the plan here's exactly what happened who was in on it but here's a bunch of people that would have benefited from this
5: I will say when it gets to that level you could say that this is like a huge reach and we're getting a little bit carried away with it but the points that were really hitting for me was him talking about the loose security situation of that day yeah when you stop and think about that for a second in the things the points that he's making you're like it does seem at a minimum a pretty poor job
4: Yeah, and I also think it's important to keep in mind that when you're talking about something as insane as a conspiracy to kill the president of the United States, that it has to be something big then. Right. It has to be huge. Yeah, yeah. Because why else would people do it, and why else would it be a secret, and why else would it stay a secret? It has to be high-level people. It has to be politically motivated beyond the norm. And the biggest things ultimately always come down to war and money and power, but right. the key people involved would be the type of people who want to have secret power. It they don't want crazy. to be president, they want to be the people I know secretly in charge.
5: You're like, getting to the president of the United States has to be this insanely difficult, if not almost impossible task. But then, a, within a matter of days, also, who you would think would be the most protected criminal in the country, <laughs> you would think, there's no way we can get to this guy. He's going to be under... Right.
4: Yeah, It's just nuts. Johnson immediately reverses JFK's course in Vietnam. X encourages Garrison to keep digging and prosecute Shaw. He sees the significance of at least bringing someone to trial for the murder of John Kennedy. And I think that what X is telling Garrison here has strong parallels to Stone with making this movie, that there's a significance to at least bringing this to people and letting them think about it i know that even today in 2022 that people don't really like this and there's always people arguing about movies from the perspective of i understand this but i'm Uh afraid how other people won't understand this and we have to monitor whether it's playing fast and loose with factual stuff like this or even just content such as satire that they're afraid people won't understand or something to that effect or, or whatever. It's always this, I know what this is, but I'm afraid other people won't know. So
5: therefore we have to like shut it down
4: because people will just take this as fact. And I'm sure there are some people that see a film like JFK and do take it as fact, but me going to a (laughs) dinner party, starting to talk about,
5: have you guys seen this JFK? Like, can you believe all this actually happened?
4: (laughs) I think if you did that, most people would probably be like, "No, I haven't seen it." Yeah, I, I don't think like it's a movie that really has carried on with no. a, a large percentage of younger people. It does
5: seem like it was a significant movie of the '90s, even though it was like early '90s. Yeah, it did seem like it made a pretty big impact during that time. But I agree with you. I don't
4: think it's something that generations that followed have really carried its legacy on. Shaw is charged with conspiring to murder the president when Garrison returns to New Orleans. The smear campaign against Garrison and his team begins in earnest. And it really does start to feel like chasing dust in the wind with Oswald at a certain point. It's just endless. Some of it is blatant speculation, obviously. They don't really know a lot about it, every detail. But it all adds up to discrediting what we've been told. Right. And I'll say it again, I think the stuff with Dealey Plaza, November 22nd, 1963... The Zapruder film, Oswald. Uh huh. That's the strongest stuff. That's the part that even people who can't buy anything else from this movie, right? A lot of them even have issues with because it's just it doesn't quite all work. The back and to the left. They really locked themselves into it. It has to be three shots because they found those three shells on the right. sixth floor and they would not move off of that, no matter yeah. what. Garrison went on a limb. And he arrests Shaw, even though the case is really not that strong, uh-huh. both in the movie and in real life. It is actually a
5: little bit of a surprise in the movie, because I, I, it does seem like mostly what this guy has is a bunch of people's Hearsay. different accounts of like a couple things here and there that seem
4: weird at best. Some of Garrison's staff begin to doubt his motives and disagree with his methods and leave the investigation
5: the one thing I will comment on it is the Michael Rooker character does seem like insanely loyal to Garrison. It almost seems like this meltdown a little bit comes out of nowhere.
4: I think there's some hints in the yeah. deleted scenes. Okay. Garrison's marriage is strained when his wife Liz complains that he is spending more time on the case than with his own family.
5: In S- sissy SpaceX big moments of the movie.
4: After a sinister phone call is made to their daughter, Liz accuses Garrison of being selfish and attacking Shaw only because of his homosexuality. We'll touch on that more later. In addition, the media launches attacks on television and in newspapers attacking Garrison's character and criticizing the way his office is spending taxpayers' money. Garrison suspects a connection with the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. and then the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. The Robert F. Kennedy part of the film is particularly chilling just because they present it in a way where Garrison is calling his shot, basically. Oh, yeah. I doubt that that's really how that played out (laughs) in real life. But watching the film, knowing what's about to happen to RFK, and then having Garrison being like, well, if he wins, they're going to kill him. That's
5: right. From Garrison's perspective, Garrison is really good.
4: The trial of Clay Shaw takes place in 1969. I liked that the judge walks into the courtroom smoking a cig. Absolutely. In some ways, this 45 minutes feel like the whole point.
5: Yeah, for sure.
4: Even though it's not really how the real trial went. Stone wanted to get us here to have Costner deliver this speech because, again, on a more meta level with this film... It's more about asking the viewer to take the next step, to keep yeah. pushing, for everyone to question it.
5: Isn't it weird? Like, these trial minutes... I guess the whole movie is kind of like this. It's sort of long, but frenetic at the same time. There's <laughs> definitely, like, almost an anxiety now. like, quick things are happening and how they're, like, running through these things.
4: Willie O'Keefe and others testify, but the character of the witnesses is all questioned. Dean Andrews testifies that the call he received from a Clay Bertrand to provide legal services to Oswald was a figment of his imagination. Huh. It's hard not to question that, but... The judge dismisses the officer who booked Shaw, who in his booking admitted that he used Clay Bertrand as an alias, and pretty much that's their whole case. Obviously, as a viewer watching, I have no idea how real this moment really is. Sure. I don't know if... Shaw ever actually said that, or if they actually had a guy who was going to testify to that, who knows? But it's dismissed and not allowed in. One of the cool things about this film is in a pre internet age, most people either had not seen the Zabruder film or had maybe seen it once or twice. They certainly weren't seeing it on a big movie screen. And this film is sort of reintroducing that to people. And in 1969, when this trial is taking place well when
5: was you may have said this but when was the subruder film made public because i know in the movie they say that they have to subpoena like time yeah, not life it, to get it, it
4: wasn't aired on television until like H- geraldo rivera i think like in the early 80s okay or, okay when it leaked yeah. but yeah so the people in the courtroom are seeing this for the first right. time which is sort of a hard moment maybe to contextualize they don't really explain it oh they don't like beat you over the head with that fact in the movie you may miss it but yeah this is like the first time anyone's seeing this sort of a shocking moment.
1: So what really happened that day? Let's just for a moment speculate, shall we? We have the epileptic seizure around 12:15 PM, distracting the police, making it easier for the shooters to move into their places. The epileptic later vanished, never checking into the hospital. The A-Team gets on the sixth floor of the depository. Now they were refurbishing the floors in the depository that week, which allowed unknown workmen in and out of the building. They move quickly into position, just minutes before the shooting. The second spotter on the radio talking to the other two teams has the best overall view. The guard spot. B team. One rifleman and one spotter with the headset and access to the building moves into the low floor of the Daltex building. The third team. The C team moves in behind the picket fence above the grassy knoll where the shooter and the spotter are first seen by the late Lee Bowers in the watchtower of the rail yard. They have the best position of all. Kennedy is close and on a flat, low trajectory. Part of this team is a coordinator who's flashed security credentials at several people chasing them out of the parking lot area. Probably two to three more men are down in the crowd on L. 10 to 12 men, three teams. Three shooters. The triangulation of fire, Clay Shaw and David Barry discussed two months before. They've walked the plaza. They know every inch. They've calibrated their sights. They practice on moving targets. They're ready. Kennedy's motor makes a turn from Maine on to Houston. It's gonna be a turkey shoot. They don't shoot him coming up Houston. Which is the easiest shot for a single shooter in the book depository? They wait. They wait till he gets to the killings on between three rifles. Kennedy makes a final turn from Houston on the L, slowing down to some 11 miles an hour. The shooters across Dealey Plaza tighten, taking their aim, waiting for the radio to say, "Green, green, or aboard, aboard." The first shot rings out. Sounding like a backfire, it misses the car completely. Frame 161, Kennedy stops waving as he hears something. Conley's head turns slightly to the right. Frame 193, the second shot hits Kennedy the throat from the front. Frame 225, the President emerging from behind the road sign. You can see that he's obviously been hit, raising his arms to his throat. The third shot, frame 232 hits Kennedy in the back, pulling him downward and forward. Conley, you will notice, shows no signs at all of being hit. He is visibly holding his Stetson, which is impossible if his wrist has been shattered. Conley is turning here now, frame 238, the fourth shot. It misses Kennedy and takes Conley in the back. This is the shot that proves there were two rifles. Conley yells out, my god, they're going to kill us all. Somewhere around this time now, another shot that misses the car completely. Strikes James Fagan down by the underpass. The car breaks. The sixth and fatal shot, frame 313, takes Kennedy in the head from the front. This is the key shot. The president going back and to his left. Shot from the front and right. Totally inconsistent with the shot from the depository. Again, back, to the left, back and to the left back and to the left back and to the left
4: and the Zapruder film does provide a lot of unaccounted for details in the Warren Commission's finding including the man struck by a bullet fragment which right sort of threw everything into disarray than the magic bullet theory it's wild to me that Wayne Knight Appears in both the Seinfeld parody <laughs> and this actual moment in the courtroom where they're going through the magic back bullet theory. Into the left. Well, actually, yeah, I know. in the movie, Newman's not a part of that. Yeah, yeah. They use the Zapruder film when he's doing back into the left. Right. But yeah, the whole thing with the bullet traveling through JFK yeah. into Governor—is it Donnelly or Connolly? I can't remember the guess, Texas governor. Uh, I was gonna say Donnelly, but now it seems like Connolly is right. <laughs> Garrison presents the court with a dismissal of the single bullet theory, proposing a scenario involving three assassins firing six shots and framing Oswald for the murders of Kennedy and Officer J.D. Tippett. The whole thing with Tippett really is interesting because there's eyewitnesses that seem to say that there were two people that ran in different directions after the officer was shot. Somebody also described the assailant as someone much bigger and different looking than harvey oswald so no one really knows for sure but that's what oswald was charged with when he he was arrested does seem crazy i think there, there are th- theories that tippett was supposed to be the one to kill oswald to end it faster sure but the, it didn't happen going
5: with the lone gunman the warren report uh, it's oswald he acted alone bizarre you would think this guy gets caught on the scene and gets killed or whatever an assassination of the president you don't think this guy's getting away but well, it does. was a
4: different time. I think that security was just not that tight, which it shouldn't have been. And there was so much chaos and confusion, Sure, potentially, because f- shots were coming in from all different yeah, directions. Yeah. We don't know. But, but no one knew what to do in like the immediate aftermath. And he was stopped in the right. depository. But then the guy who was the boss was like, oh, no, he works here. And they let him go.
5: But it is just weird to think that he left the scene and was... Presumably living his life for like a few hours following this.
4: yeah, I'm not sure exactly on the time frame. Yeah, I don't know how much time was going by. There's a lot more in the court here with the autopsy, which is explored a lot in the documentary. Garrison goes through Oswald's movements. It's all a a masterful job of editing and presentation through this sequence. Sometimes you forget that it's a feature film. It's not a documentary. It feels so real with flashing back through the different oh, totally. Oswald stuff yeah. and the different moments in Dealey Plaza and the different moments with LBJ on the plane and then the autopsy, everything. It's, it's crazy. But it's just
5: the speed at which Garrison is going through this. It's like he cannot wait to get all this stuff out.
4: Yeah, it's burning inside him. And yeah. I think that he knew this was the one opportunity to say this stuff right. out loud and try to get it on the record. And, of course, he would have loved a Hail Mary of convicting... Clay Shaw, but that became almost secondary, at least how it's presented in the film. Right. The final argument from Garrison is so good that you almost get emotional yourself. Right. It ends with Garrison speaking to camera and saying, it's up to you directly into the camera. And I love the choice, after all of that chaos with the different flashbacks and the wild editing, to stay on Costner for the majority of this ending part during the speech.
1: But someday, somewhere, someone may find out the damn truth. We better, we better, or we might just as well build ourselves another government, like the Declaration of Independence says to when the old one ain't working, just, just a little farther out west. American Naturalist wrote, a patriot must always be ready to defend his country against its government. I'd hate to be in your shoes today. You have a lot to think about. You've seen much hidden evidence the American public has never seen. You know, going back to when we were children, I think that most of us in this courtroom thought that justice came into being automatically, that virtue was its own reward, that, that good would triumph over evil. But as we get older, we know this just isn't true individual human beings have to create justice. And this is not easy. Because the truth often poses a threat to power. And one often has to fight power at great risk to themselves. People like S.M. Holland, Lee Bowers, Jean Hill, Willie O'Keefe, have all taken that risk. They've all come forward. I have here some $8,000 in these letters sent, sent to my office from all over the country, quarters. Dimes, dollar bills from housewives, plumbers, car salesmen, teachers, invalids. These are people who cannot afford to send money but do. These are the ones who drive the cabs, who nurse in the hospitals, who see their kids go to Vietnam. Why? Because they care. Because they want to know the truth. Because they want the country back because it still belongs to us, as long as the people have the guts to fight for what they believe in. The truth is the most important value we have, because if the truth does not endure, if the government murders truth, if, it, if we cannot respect the hearts of these people, then this is not the country in which I was born in, and it's certainly not the country that I wanna die in. Tennyson wrote, authority forgets a dying king. This was never more true than for John F. Kennedy, whose murder was probably one of the most terrible moments in the history of our country. You the people, the jury system sitting in judgment on Clay Shaw represent the hope of humanity against government power In discharging your duty and bringing the first conviction in this house of cards against Clay Shaw. ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Do not forget your dying king. Show this world that this is still a government of the people, for the people, and by the people. Nothing as long as you live will ever be more important. it's
4: up to you now in real life the real garrison never made this exact speech this was an amalgam of a bunch of different speeches he made and different stuff that he said and also stuff that was written in his book
5: yeah it's a bizarre closing argument for a clay jaw
4: case almost never mentioned Shaw but the tears from Costner were real he was getting like choked up saying these things. right right and you can kind of tell However, as expected, the jury acquits Shaw after less than one hour of deliberation. Members of the jury state publicly that they believe there was a conspiracy behind the assassination, but not enough evidence to link Shaw to that conspiracy.
5: Which I think we can all agree with.
4: And that's essentially how the film ends. You have Liz, Garrison's wife, show up with the son, and he sort of uses his son in that one moment to say, like, hopefully... When they unseal these records, I've already told my That's son right. to take care of himself so he'll be alive in 2029 to yeah, yeah, to go into the public
5: archive and blah, blah, blah. That's a lot of like, you got to be extra careful living that life now.
4: In 1979, Richard Helms, director of covert operations in 1963, admitted under oath that Clay Shaw had worked for the CIA. Clay Shaw died in 1974 of lung cancer. No autopsy was allowed. I love okay. when they throw stuff like that in there with no explanation, so then you're like, what the fuck does that mean? <laughs> what is it, allowed? It's in those... 1978, Jim Garrison was elected judge of the Louisiana State Court of Appeal in New Orleans. He was re-elected in 1988. To this date, he has brought the only public prosecution in the Kennedy killing. Stone adds, what? Southeast Asia. Two million Asian lives lost, 58,000 American lives lost, billion spent, 10 million Americans airlifted there by commercial aircraft, more than 5,000 helicopters lost, 6.5 million tons of bombs dropped. A congressional investigation from 1976 to 1979 found a, quote, probable conspiracy in the assassination of John F. Kennedy and recommended the Justice Department investigate further. As of 1991, the Justice Department has done nothing.
5: Well, they were happy for the recommendation.
4: The files of the House Select Committee on Assassinations are locked away until the year 2029. It's sort of like when Lindsay recommends that I do the dishes from the
5: dishwasher. I've what taken it under consideration. Is no past action.
4: is prologue, dedicated to the young in whose spirit the search for truth marches on. And then there's a little bit more in the director's cut. As a result of this film, Congress in 1992 passed legislation to appoint a panel to review all files and determine which ones would be made available to the American public, which is something that is ongoing still. I don't think they've ever released everything. Yeah, yeah. Although
5: they definitely don't... Isn't there like a, a sighting of this movie sort of pushing a little bit of...
4: That's what I just said.
5: ...the release of other things? Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
4: He screened this for congress in 1991 and it sort of spearheaded the release date to be moved up from 2029 to immediately although a lot of stuff is still ultimately redacted and some stuff has still not been released the documentary does a pretty good job at adding more fuel to the fire with some stuff that's been released including some insane (laughs) things that they were going to try with cuba that are really disturbing and weird to try to start that war with cuba that kennedy said no to Basically, just more motive. Right. So, let's get into it. Willie O'Keefe, not real at all. Okay. He's based off of a heterosexual insurance salesman who was also discredited in various ways, shapes, and forms. I'm not really sure where the Willie O'Keefe character came from other than to sort of further the homosexual thread, which is something that doesn't particularly age well about the film. This guy, though, the real guy that O'Keefe is based on, was potentially drugged with what they refer to as truth serum. Okay. And that pentothal or whatever it's called. Right. Which is referenced in the film. Yes. They mentioned the criticisms that Garrison's facing, yet you never see him do it or anyone talk about it, really. But it seems like Garrison may have done it, which is not great. No, no. David Ferry... Is real, but maintain his innocence. The scene of him admitting to the conspiracy is pretty much an invention. His death was also not particularly suspicious, which is how it's portrayed in the film. yeah. The truth serum stuff, the witnesses were even worse than how they seem. Oh, boy. The X stuff is part speculation, part fantasy. He's an amalgam character. And one of those guys, I think Proudy, the one There's that no is based off. There's no
5: part reality? It's just part speculation, part made up?
4: Well, it's just not provable. Well, yeah. Nothing that's said right. in any of that stuff is really sure. provable. But Garrison says
5: that he had some of these types of conversations.
4: I don't know. Okay. I don't know if that's Garrison or Stone. Okay. Because Stone met the one guy that they're, it's based on, Proudy and it seemed to really shape his I thinking. See. All right. That's I'm not hundred percent sure. clear on if, right. if Garrison ever went either to the either way and met e- this whatever
5: guy. conversation this is to the millionth degree <laughs> exaggerated.
4: Garrison's case crumbled in court in real life, and there's also the blatant homophobic stuff that's sort of swept under the rug in the movie, although it comes out a little bit. He did sort of portray the New Orleans gay underground lifestyle, which would have been way underground in the sixties yeah, yeah. as this horrible thing that conspired to kill the president (laughs) and that was really the basis for which a lot of these people were connected although the film never really even suggests that oswald was a homosexual or involved but you do have to wonder if that's maybe what garrison was implying by his relationships with these people i don't know it does seem odd yeah however stone did release an annotated version of the script in which he provides sources for every claim made. That doesn't necessarily mean the sources are... Reliable. (laughs) ...legitimate, but it's not as if he made it up. It all is coming from somewhere, something. But absolutely none of that matters, not really. Stone was attacked relentlessly even well before the film was released, attempting to assassinate his character and credibility, which only backfired and made people... Yeah desperate to actually see the film for themselves. Much
5: like we see happen to the garrison character in the movie.
4: I feel, personally, that many of these detractors are simply unwilling or unable to see the forest for the trees. The goal of JFK is so much larger than simplifying or combining details or even inventing answers that are otherwise unknowable. As is often the case, fiction is a way to explain the past when the past can't do it. Sure. JFK is incendiary, it suggests not only corruption and conspiracy at the highest levels, but it also implicates a president in a coup d'etat. This may be a bridge too far for some, but again, we come back to that forest and those trees. Stone believes the Warren Report is fiction, as do now many Americans, and so he sought to create counterfiction using Jim Garrison's quest as his avatar to not necessarily solve the murder of John Kennedy, but to at the very least, reveal how much the American people didn't know yeah, because we weren't told. Wouldn't you say
5: that there's a higher percentage of Americans that think that something was at least amiss than believe the lone gunman thing?
4: Yeah, I think it's three and four or something okay. like that. Okay, wow. Although this movie did have a big influence on that. Sure. Detractors have, for decades now, attempted to disprove or invalidate so much of the film, but they can never quite answer everything. They can never make it all make sense, probably because JFK, not as a film, but as an explanation, is just as flawed as the Warren Report. Totally. But at least Stone has been pretty open about that. As Garrison says to camera during his closing argument in the courtroom, it's up to you. It's up to the viewer to continue the quest for truth, to never fully trust what you're told, and also maybe more importantly, to decide for yourself. What do you think? Artistically, it was a big moment for Stone. Oh, yeah. JFK marked a fundamental change in the way that Stone constructed his films, a subjective lateral presentation of the plot with the editing's rhythm carrying the story. Stone brought in Hank Corwin, an editor of commercials, to help edit the film. Oh, that kind of makes sense. Stone chose him because his chaotic mind was totally alien to the film form. And it uh, comes through. But he had not developed the long form yet, and so a lot of his cuts were very chaotic. Stone employed extensive use of flashbacks within flashbacks for a specific effect.
5: And this did win Best Cinematography, too, right?
4: Yes. Yeah. For uh, your boy, Robert Richardson, who now does all of Tarantino's movies. Yeah, yeah. He said in an interview, I wanted to do the film on two or three levels. Sound and picture would take us back, and we'd go from one flashback to another, and then that flashback would go inside another flashback. I wanted multiple layers because reading the Warren Commission report is like drowning. I think that in a lot of ways, this was the peak of Stone's career in terms of his artistic prowess, and this became his legacy in a lot of ways, but that's also for better and for worse because... I do think he kind of became known as the conspiracy nut guy. Right, right. And this impacted his future. For sure. And you can kind of look at the rest of the 90s and then I even the remember. rest of his career, and it, it it seems like there was a definite delineation of yeah, like pre-JFK yeah. and post-JFK. I
5: definitely remember when W was coming out. It seemed like he was getting a lot of shit way in the build up to it.
4: Yeah. Unfortunately, that movie's really not that good. Yeah, I've
5: never seen it.
4: And doesn't really have the same kind of power. Sure. I, I do think that part of it is just a director getting old. And I also think that despite whatever connections he could have potentially made between George W. Bush and Iraq and whatever happens in JFK with Vietnam, I just don't think the same passion is there. Sure, He just has that special thing about Vietnam because for Stone— It's always all about Vietnam. It's a big lie or a series of lies, and it's all connected, and it's the reason why he found himself there, watching his friends get killed at such a formative age. Even though he did enlist, but I think that in a way makes it worse because he enlisted under the false pretense in his mind. I think at the end of the day, you have to go back to X's monologue. No one says it. There's no vote, no record of it. It's like a whisper in the wind. That's right, yeah. It's happening, and only certain people know. And I think that in order for you to believe any part of this movie, you have to sort of understand that it could be just a small, limited number of people and that the rest of the people don't really know what they're doing, but they're a part of it in some way. And that it's just a few conspirators very high up who put everything into motion and found the right tools. I was comparing it to True Detective Season 1, right. the Yellow King, that monstrous guy who yeah, yeah. takes the fall for everyone and the the people really high up who were organizing those horrible parties right. and it's another one where, like, that, are untouched.
5: That full web, like the full truth is just so much darker than this one guy. who Yeah, and
4: I guess in my comparison to explain yeah. it, it would be that the people beneath Clay Shaw, it's like, well, how do you get from Oswald and David Ferry and willie o'keefe and clay shaw and jack ruby all the way up to alan dulles or somebody of that nature and it's like well they are the ones getting their hands dirty there has to be all these layers of protection so that when something gets revealed it never goes back to the top that's just a theory of course right personally i think the movie is a little hasty to discount the mob altogether but the mob doesn't really fit with oliver stone's narrative what he wants it to be and needs it to be right the mob would have not really much to do with vietnam i do
5: think the mob angle is interesting and i wish there was a little bit more diving into it
4: i do think that it's possible that certain bad actors within the united states government got involved with mafia people to see this through oh yeah that is also potentially a theory you could buy into one of the more bizarre elements of the film though is really how hard Stone goes to bat for Oswald and portrays him as basically innocent almost. (laughs) I know. Not just that he didn't act alone, but that he didn't pull a trigger at all. Yeah, I do think that the fact that he refers to himself as a patsy is a pretty good indicator that he had to have known there was something happening. That's
5: right. Look, they don't paint him as the most intelligent guy, so it seems kind of odd that his first instinct would be to go to a camera and say, I'm a patsy. You're really thinking.
4: Yeah, if you use that word, that means you've been set up. Yeah. I think if you were a normal guy and had nothing to do with anything and you got arrested and you're like, what the fuck's going on? I don't think you would go to that word (laughs) A cop just tried to kill me. Especially since he got killed two days later. Now, maybe if you go for weeks and months and you see this, monstrous case they've built against you and you're like, where the fuck did this all come from? Yeah. Then maybe you would start saying Patsy, but right. he's saying it immediately, basically. Yeah. Do you have any specific theory about what you think happened?
5: No, I don't. It's one of those things where I, I don't know that I am ready to go down a road or have seen anything that is definitive of some massive conspiracy that that goes to the highest levels. But I do think, at a minimum, they did not capture all of the details from the scene
4: i think there were multiple shooters yeah and that oswald was probably one of the shooters there was supposedly that test on his hands that proved that he didn't fire a weapon that day that was suppressed I, i don't know yeah but i it seems like he probably fired some shots and that there were other shooters as well how high that went up i don't know right If you believe everything in the movie, then it would seem like there would have to be people on the inside who changed the parade route and did different things.
5: I definitely have the door open, but I think I need a little something more to come out before I'm ready to go to these next levels. But I do think at a minimum, obviously, the report, it's not 100 percent accurate. And I do have a lot of questions about why Jack Ruby goes and does this and is able to pull it off. Even if I take the Lee Harvey Oswald thing, it, it doesn't seem like ruby would just be able to just walk up and shoot him on tv two days later and it
4: does feel like an improv too yeah where they thought that they would kill him ahead of time and it didn't happen so they had to improvise a different right murder situation because they couldn't have him talking for too long because something was bound to come out there are also theories that the bullets were all supposed to miss and it was supposed to scare kennedy I don't really buy into that either. But there's different theories about that, about trying to push. If you're supposed
5: to miss, I I mean, that was a pretty bad job.
4: Trying to push him (laughs) into going to war with Cuba.
5: It's a pretty rough thing to have live footage of. Yeah. Like the President of the United States basically head exploding. Like it's just, it is tough to watch.
4: Back and to the left. (laughs) Back. And to the left, making the people look at it yeah, over. And I know. Over. Rewind, slow motion. <laughs> well, he wants to make sure they're getting it that the book depository by that point would be behind him, and right. he's going back into the left rather yeah, than yeah. forward. Who knows? We don't know. Definitely not. The movie is wildly entertaining. I was trying to undertake the notes by breaking this into pieces and setting aside, like, okay, I'm going to watch this much now, and then this much now, then this oh, much yeah. now, and then going blowing past it every time because you get so sucked into it right it doesn't feel like three and a half hours even when you watch the director's cut which is its own incredible feat to take something like this which doesn't even have a ton of action in it it's a lot of talking i I think
5: the fast pace
4: of it yeah that's where the editing comes in. that's why it won the oscar for it okay jade I think that'll... That's the best we can do, Jade. ...wrap up JFK. (laughs) I don't think we really need to do recommendations other than to say you can check out JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass, which is available to stream on Showtime. Oh, yeah. Where I think it aired originally. Yeah,
5: I've only watched, I don't know, like a third of it so far, but I'm definitely going to finish it.
4: It's not as compelling as the film itself, but there's new information and they double down on some other stuff, almost uh, as like an F you to the people who... been and it detracting helps, over the years It definitely helps like
5: Fill things out more like you, Knowing more about these guys Who did the Warren report And they
4: get into The chain of custody With some of the evidence oh, Which yeah. doesn't really seem To be the real evidence anymore There's a lot of shit It's just wild When you just really bizarre. Go down these right. things And this is really The only conspiracy theory That I've ever really Entertained that much I don't really get sucked Into that stuff yeah. Often I was going to ask you I enjoy fiction like the X Files yeah. or different movies and whatnot. But I'm li-
5: I'm, I'm interested in he- in hearing them. But yeah, I'm I'm
4: rarely like thinking that.
5: Well, most of them seem so stupid
4: at it. a right. certain point. But yeah. the JFK one always endures because there's just so many weird things that can't be explained. Right, and it's not just little details either. It's it's pretty major stuff. Agreed. One final note: I do think that the Seinfeld parody almost serves as like a weird Companion legacy piece? for this movie yeah. because of how often those episodes have played in syndication for years oh, I know now. And it is so crazy that Wayne Knight is just in both. <laughs> yeah. And it's the perfect parody, Heavily too. involved with the events of the Seinfeld episode one. Keith Hernandez, a yeah. second spitter. <laughs> it's all gold. Okay, so thanks to Jade for the listener request. Up next christy then brian and theodore that will cover listener request summer right there stay tuned in and then more coming for the rest of the year after that follow the show on twitter at greatest pod make sure you're subscribed to the podcast on apple podcasts or Podbean or wherever give us a rating and review on apple podcasts if you'd like a sticker let us know and we'll send that to you for free maybe you can throw that on your Bumper or something on your car. Totally. Spread the word. Proudly promote the show, you know, for your friends here. And finally, find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983, and Matt Crosby. And I think that'll do it. We'll talk to you next time.
2: Over sleepy garden walls And the stars begin to twinkle In the night In the mist of a memory You wander back to me Breathe in my name With a sigh Once again, I hold you tight, oh you're gone, your love lives on, huh? when moonlight
0: slow dance people usually dance slowly
3: hey I'm a rebel
8: oh really is that why you kept booing during the movie
6: I was upset we drive all the way across town to see the Prince of Ties and there wasn't one bit of surfing (laughs) we should have went to see Jifk.
9: oh you mean JFK
3: Know how it's (laughs) spelled.